Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time, who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 75. Lee Harvey Oswald. You spoke to me in Russian, and and I answered you. You've leaped into Lee Harvey Oswald. Maybe this has something to do with leaping twice into the same person. What twice? I leaped into Oswald in 63. At least that's what the... Newspapers I was holding said it was March of 63. Well, how'd you know you were Oswald? Marina was taking my picture. You know that famous picture with the rifle and, and the newspapers? I was Oswald. How can you be so sure? I could feel him in me. In you? You know how there's always a little residual of the other person left behind in a leap? You know, like a little of their knowledge, their personality, or maybe even a little bit of their soul. So you got a little Lee Harvey Oswald in you. You can handle that. I can stop the assassination. If Oswald really was the assassin. What do you mean if Oswald was really the assassin? Well, there's a lot of people think that he was set up. Set up? By whom? Could have been anybody. Could have been the FBI, Secret Service, uh, CIA, the military, the mafia, defense contractors, John Birchers. You name it, they all had something to gain from Kennedy's death. Now we're talking about murdering the president of the United States. Don't you remember all the conspiracy books and the movies? Now, if I leaped into Oswald to uncover a conspiracy, why didn't I stay in 63? Maybe because it started here in Atsugi. Atsugi? Japan. Uh, yeah, well, the KGB probably contacted Oswald somewhere around here. Wait a second, you didn't mention the Russians. They were behind the assassination? That's one theory. Another one is that Oswald was just pretending to be with the KGB. He was really with the CIA or the FBI. Wait, 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 wait. I don't know who's controlling who. I mean, am I controlling Oswald or is he controlling me? Sam. You know, I mean, that's Sam, the scary part. I... Wait a second. We're going to uncover this conspiracy and change what happened in Dallas. I feel it in my bones. Come on, Lee. Get out of here. Hey, hey, come on, man. It's over. It's Oswald. not over till I get my lessons. 
Sam, put down that gun. Look, we'll, we'll grab a drink, we'll go upstairs, take our women up there. And Back we'll... off! Sam, listen to me. Cushy, I can't get through to him. Tell Ziggy I've got to have a way to get through to him. Uh, uh, Sam, Sam, what are the four uh, fundamental forces of interactions in quantum physics? Gravitation, electromagnetism, the strong and weak nuclear force. What's the Pauli exclusion principle? Fermions can occupy a given quantum state at the same time. Neither can two human souls. Then why am I here in Russia? Ziggy's working on it. I personally think it has, that think it has, it has something to do with the conspiracy. Yeah. Why don't you change that record, okay? Well, I still believe it. Al. In all of these leaps so far, we haven't uncovered any conspiracy, and we have not proven that Oswald was not the assassin. Well, maybe this one will. Yeah, but I can't keep wandering around leap after leap like this. We gotta, we gotta take the initiative somehow. Right. Well, what do we do? Oh, you're not becoming Oswald again, are you? I don't actually become Oswald. I just sort of drift along next to him, and his thoughts come out. Oh, you're not drifting, are you? No, I'm theorizing. Or trying to. Oh, sorry. It's okay. I was just thinking, though, what if I prematurely exited that first leap into Oswald? Or the one where Marina took your picture? Yeah. What if I leaped out before I had a chance to put right what once went wrong? Well, success doesn't have anything to do with leaping. You're listening, I said before I had a chance to undo the wrong. Well, why would you leap before you had a chance? Well, if I knew that, I'd know how to get off this leaping yo-yo so that I could do whatever it was I was supposed to do in the first place. It would just stop, stop the assassination. This. Right, well, let's hope that's it. Sam, Ziggy says you're on the right track. It's just going to take yeah. time to test your hypothesis, but you should continue and play this scenario out. Oh, look, I got a big oh, choice. Oh, wait, I didn't finish, but you got to play it out just the way Oswald did. No changing history. Okay. <laughs> Sam, it worked. It worked. It almost worked. It's April 10th, 1963, and that's only a month after your original leap into Oz. If I killed him, there should be something on the radio. Killed who? Gushy? What the hell's he talking about? Mackle, Sam. You leaped into Oswald just seconds after he tried to blow General Edward Walker's head off. Try that missed. Not you, Oswald. Sam, you're scaring the hell out of me. You were acting like... Oswald's mind was still merged into yours. It is. No, it can't be. Only this time it's different. No, but Ziggy said it would be gone. Yeah, why would it be gone? Well, Ziggy computed that the reason that you were leaping back and forth in Oswald's life was because the part of your mind that's in him and the part of his mind that's in you were trying to uh, reunite. So what did you do? I didn't do, I didn't, nothing. Ziggy, well, Ziggy figured that if we could reconnect your minds, then we could get the leap back on track. So through uh, DNA typing, Ziggy identified, you know, the little mesons and neurons in Oswald's brain that biologically matched yours, that we put Oswald in the accelerator and we leaped those little things back to you. You can't leap isolated mesons and neurons without drawing other neural energy with it. More yeah. neural energy? Sucking up more of Oswald's mind. That's why this dude is different. There's more of him and me. 
exactly what Oswald Y'all city! Season five. See, season, season five. with me. Season five. Oh my god, this freaking new theme song. I am so freaking pumped. Hey everyone. This is Christy Philippus. I'm Allison Pregler. <laughs> and I'm Matt Dale. And welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. If you can't tell, we are in season five and we are here today. We are so excited to be talking about the season five opener, Lee Harvey Oswald. Right, guys? Yeah. Bring it on. And in order to make it perfect, we have a very special guest. Joining us is the Thunder from Down Under, the <laughs> co-executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast, Mr. Hayden McQueenie. Hayden, welcome back to the podcast. How have you been? Thanks, Chris. Uh, well, I have to say I need this cavalcade through Dallas like I need a hole in the head, but I'm very excited to be here. I think I'm more excited than you are, let's just say. <laughs> Not possible. I was waiting for the inappropriate Kennedy jokes and boom, right out of the gate. <laughs> We've got to get them out of the way. Do you? <laughs> They're never going to end. I can I can behave myself now. <laughs> <laughs> but how's everyone handling being in um, lockdown? Well, you know, lots of time to watch Lee Harvey Oswald, I guess. Yeah, true. <laughs> 16 <laughs> times. We need the extra time, don't we? Because it's a double episode. Not only are we happy to be talking Lee Harvey Oswald, but we're also happy to bring you an interview with actress Natasha Pavlovich. Hey. Pavlovich. I asked her, how do you pronounce your last name? She even said it for me. So uh, she played Marina in this episode, Marina Oswald. I interviewed her and she was an amazing, cool person. And we'll also be bringing you an interview excerpt from Ilya Bashkin who played Major Yuri Kosenko. He was the uh, the dude that was interrogating Sam about the U2, and oh, he he's is great. a legendary character actor. Yeah. Just to give some, um, some context on that, the Ilya Bashkin interview comes from an older podcast, my first podcast, the 112263 podcast, and he was interviewed by my former partner, Skipper Martin. So it's not a long bit where he talks about Quantum Leap, but if you want to hear the full interview, you can hear it somewhere back on this feed, on the Quantum Leap podcast feed. Years ago, we did a crossover episode between QLP and 112263, and the full Ilya Bashkin interview was part of that. So when you're done listening to this, you can just scroll back in your feed and find the full interview and other stuff that we've done regarding Lee Harvey Oswald. But... That's all in the past. Um, guys, I know we usually start with initial impressions, and I want to keep up with that, but we have a lot to unpack here because it's just such – such. this episode brings a lot of baggage. I think it's like narratively we have a lot to talk about. Historically, we have a lot to talk about, and societally, we have a lot to talk about. So I'd like you guys to begin in broad terms with initial impressions of Lee Harvey Oswald, and specifically what I really want to know about it is – how old you were when you first saw it and what impression did it make on you then? And then in broad terms, again, how do you feel about it now? So I know that that's 
kind of more specific than we get, but I'm going to ask some very specific questions after that. So I just want to get some broad initial impressions. And Allison, you want to begin? All right. I was uh, a few years ago, years old, when I saw this <laughs> for the first time. Um, I'm just going to preface things with this. Uh, I don't want to be a big uh, crab in this. I'm probably not <laughs> going to be very useful in this episode <laughs> concerning Lee Harvey Oswald. Um <laughs> Here was my impression. Um, it took me a long time to get into this episode. Um, I did not like it very much, and uh, I appreciate it from a certain standpoint now, but not not the broader historical stuff. Um, I'm not very big into JFK conspiracy assassination stories, so the parts that I'm interested in or are um, are character based stuff, but the the overall leap, I'm uh, I'm very mixed on. Hmm. Okay. How about you, Matt? Well, I first saw this on my 13th birthday. I know that for definite because that was when it was first broadcast in the UK. Uh, I share a birthday with the anniversary of Kennedy's assassination. Um, wait, wait, what? Your birthday is on 1122? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I know. <laughs> yeah, I expect <laughs> presents from all of you this year. <laughs> is that a coincidence or is there some bigger conspiracy? Well, that would be easy and comforting for you to believe, wouldn't it, Alison? <laughs> if we can believe that a sicko like me could be born on 11 22 63 No, um, well, it wasn't 63, was it? <laughs> I'm not quite that old. Yeah, I, I first saw it way back when it was first aired in the UK, um, and it was uh, it was shown in the midst of an, a weekend of stuff about the assassination. So it sparked off a brief fascination uh, that I had for a couple of years with um, with that and the conspiracy theory and everything. It was a long time ago. I don't remember a lot of it, but um, it certainly kicked that off. What has kind of stuck with me more over the years than the interest in JFK and the historical stuff is actually the stylistic uniqueness of this episode. And I think we'll, we'll end up talking about some of that later, but I love how this episode feels very different to everything that comes before and even after it although it's it's kicking off a new look for season five mm-hmm. there's some stuff that really only happens in this one and that's um yeah that that's what's kind of stuck with me over the years cool cool and hayden how about you okay well funny story i watched quantum leap for the first time when i was around about 10 years old my mum was a very big fan of it and when we finally got pay tv we found that it was being run the entire series all the way through on one of our pay tv channels and my mum would religiously record every single episode onto vhs she didn't miss a single one until the lee harvey oswald episode came about and they didn't play it so we had to wait until they went through an entire second cycle when they decided they were going to play it as a special. So that's the first time I got to watch it. And how old were you then? Well, I was still in primary school, so I don't think I was any older than about 10. And uh, my mum was very strict on me. I could only watch certain episodes. She wouldn't let me watch the most violent ones. It wasn't until many years later I could see ones like Black on White on Fire or Dreams. But when Lee Harvey Oswald was coming on, I I had to be very firm with my mum. Sometimes you've got to be very firm with your parents. And I said, I'm watching this one. And so I did, and I instantly regretted it because it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> and uh, it was years until I would watch it again. Having said that, though, I loved it, 
and I still do really enjoy this episode. I personally think it's one of the best acted episodes in the entire series. Story-wise, I'm a lot more forgiving than I think a lot of you uh, who I'm speaking to at the moment are. But uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed nearly everything about it. So I'm the positive side of the the crew today. I think Matt and Chris have been pretty positive about it, too. I think it's just me that's that's coming in that. (laughs) Oh, no, no. I've listened to 112263. Chris is not positive about it. Maybe it's just me. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I have a really long and involved history with this episode Mm. because um, I was 22 when I first saw it. So right off the bat, I had been a Quantum Leap fan you know, for years at this point. And when I first saw it, I really didn't like it. And when I started podcasting, it was to do 112263, an event podcast, which was a podcast all about the Stephen King book in which a time traveler goes back to prevent the Kennedy assassination. And as part of that podcast, we did bonus episodes about other properties, other media in which uh, that premise played out as well. So the first bonus episode we did was Lee Harvey Oswald. And, um, when I watched it back then, to preface for that show, I, I think I liked it even less. <laughs> um, so I have to tell you, so my history with this is like, it's a little bit spotty, but this latest rewatch, I don't know, it's, I do know, it's not, it's not even a question. Because we're doing this show, and because I've been talking to you guys, specifically Matt and Allison, and not to leave you out, Hayden, but my two regular co-hosts have reignited my my fandom for Quantum Leap is as strong as it's ever been. Uh, I think it I, it hasn't been this strong since I was writing my book. So I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. So I, I have such a different appreciation of this episode now than I ever had. And I think it comes back to the fun that I have on this show. But I think that we'd be doing sort of a disservice if we didn't put this episode into historical context, because as I suspected, I'm, I'm, always the oldest guy in the room now. And I was the only one that saw this when I was, say, in in their 20s, like as as an adult. And I just wanted to let the younger listeners out there know what was going on at the time when this episode came out. Because about a year before this, in 1991, JFK, the Oliver Stone film, had come out. And there was just this resurgence of interest in the Kennedy assassination on the heels of that film. JFK is the most, we called it the crackpot classic. (laughs) The conspiracy theories that are running through that film are nebulous and many. And Oliver Stone did his best to throw everything he could at the wall to see what stuck. And one of the problems that I've always had with this episode of Quantum Leap was sort of like tracing what kind of conspiracy are they talking about? Where, Where is this going? Why are we seeing this? Why are we seeing this? And once I got better versed in JFK, maybe that helped my appreciation for this episode of Quantum Leap because I kind of knew what Don was refuting. And at the time anyway, everybody, just about everybody was convinced that Oswald probably could not have acted alone because the zeitgeist had shifted to the point where it was just like, oh, you know, the movie, the movie threw out so much stuff Hmm. That it was, it, it just seems so highly unlikely that Oswald could have acted alone. That most people were just like, "Yeah, we need to reexamine this. We need to," but but not Don Balsario. <laughs> <laughs> and as most of us listening, and I think all of us talking already know, um, Don's 
specific reason for writing this episode was to refute the conspiracy theories that were floating around in the wake of Oliver Stone's film. And you don't have to take my word for it. Guys, we had Don Belisario on the show a couple of years ago, and Albie asked him that exact question. So here's Don talking about sort of the genesis of the Lee Harvey Oswald, The Quantum Leap. Something that came up in uh, the Quantum Leap uh, series was the two-parter Lee Harvey Oswald. I understand you actually met Lee Harvey Oswald while you were in the military. I met him when I was a Marine, and when I was separating from uh, the Marine Corps back in 1959, I went over to my old outfit. I was not at El Toro, and I was separating there, and I went to my old outfit which was uh, Max 9. It was over at uh, MCAAS uh, El Toro, uh, which is where they used to have the blimp hangers originally, and it was a helicopter base when I, I was there. And uh, I wanted to see if any of my old mates were there, so I went into the, uh, the uh, supply shed where uh, I wanted to look at the names of everybody, and they always have a list there. And... Sitting on the floor behind the counter was this guy reading Pravda. Now, you can understand, this was 1959. It was a totally different outlook on the world, believe me. Communism was the big, bad bear. And what is this Marine doing reading Pravda? And so I started to question him about that. And he starts spilling all this communist propaganda at me. I couldn't believe it. Uh, he and I got into an argument. It was Anyway, um, one of the guys there grabbed me and said, hey, forget him. He's, I'll never forget this. The guy said, forget him. He's harmless. And when he assassinated President Kennedy, uh, I saw his face on TV and I said, I know that guy. And my wife said, no, you don't know him. You just, I said, I'm telling you, I know him. And she said, I, I doubt it. And then when they said he was a Marine, formally, I went, that's that son of a bee that was in the supply shed that I got into an argument with at Max 9. And that was my class with Lee Harvey Oswald. And the reason I wrote the episode, which was the only episode that was based on a true character, because Quantum Leap, one of the things you could do is, if you don't leap, leap into real people and real events, you can do anything you want. You can create any situation you want, which is what we did in Quantum Leap, and then rectify it. Because who's going to argue with you that there, you know, that that didn't happen? But when you leap into something that happened, that's a whole different ball game. Because how can you change history, real history? You can't. And that was a hang-up for me in writing that episode until I got to the end and I figured, I know, because I leaped him into Lee Harvey Oswald, and as you know. And at the end, I made the spin that he's sitting there in the hospital corridor, and Kennedy's been taken into Parkland, and, and Al shows up next to him, and he says, Al, I couldn't save him. I couldn't save him. And Al says, yeah, but you, 
you saved Jackie. She originally was shot too. So that made it work. Now, the reason I wrote it was because my then probably 14-year-old son, 15-year-old son, came back from seeing JFK and told me all this BS about how there was a conspiracy to kill Kennedy and, you know, all the stuff uh, that uh, was put in the movie, JFK. And it, it just, you know, when Oliver Stone wrote that crap, uh, my son believed it. He said, I saw it. And I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to write uh, Quantum Leap to show you how one man could have done it. And that's why I wrote the story of JFK and Quantum Leap and Lee Harvey Oswald. I absolutely <laughs> love that. Look, I'm not, I'm not faulting him for being like, this is BS because, like, you know, he's entitled to the. I mean, I don't have a strong opinion on it either way, but um, it's just the fact that he felt so strongly about it that he was like, I hate this. I hate that he made that movie. I'm going to write an episode of Quantum Leap, and it's going to be Lee Harvey Oswald's story starring Sam Beckett, and I'm going to make it an hour and a half long special, and it's going to open season five. And then he did it. Just to troll Oliver Stone. Yeah, just right. to be like, screw you, here's the real story. And and here's the real story, because, and yeah, like you, Alison, I, I don't have like, a strong opinion either way, but from Belisario's point of view, I'm going to tell the real story. Because I met that guy for two minutes and had a bit of a Barney with him. So I know what happened. <laughs> Conspiracy schmonspiracy. I saw him and he was reading some communist propaganda. I think I pretty much know what his life was like. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it's funny that, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're us and you just walk around saying, oh, that was true. That was false. You're Don Belisario. Yeah, well, yeah I, can, I can muster all of the power of the network right at my fingertips. So yeah. it's great. But we have to ask, an, I think, an obvious question because it's just what you ask when it, not uh, – we can't ask the, the first most obvious question, which is where were you when JFK was shot? Because <laughs> none of us were born. But the, the, the most obvious question that I think comes up now is do you believe that oswald acted alone and does quantum leap have any impact on that belief did quantum leap help shape that belief so allison what do you think <laughs> it sucks starting with me i always have the worst answer here i don't think anything i really and truly don't <laughs> okay like and i that's mean <laughs> i don't i'm sure you guys will have a lot of theories on this so that's that's fine but like me personally like I've never given a lot of thought to the JFK stuff. Everything that I've seen talking about it has been extremely boring to me. <laughs> um, and I just, I don't like putting on tinfoil hats and like, what could this mean? You know, so I, I guess from that perspective, like, I guess I'll lean toward it was one guy, but I just, I just don't care enough. But that's not to say like, it's bad for the people who do care. Like, I know there are people that are very interested in, in if anything, more than what appeared to happen happened. But for me personally, I just I just don't have the energy or the want <laughs> to, to look into it further. <laughs> That's fair enough. Um, how about you, Matt? Do you believe Oswald acted alone? Yeah, so the answer to both your questions is, is yes and yes. Um, I lean towards... Oswald being a lone gunman, but I I did 
realised sometime later that that was definitely shaped by the fact that my introduction to uh, the whole JFK thing was through this episode. And uh, there's that that scene with Alan Gushy is so well written, and I'll make such a good point about um, uh, the the comfort of believing in a conspiracy theory. My 13 year old self immediately wrote it off, and uh, I've never really really been able to backtrack from that. Then Oswald would have to be the sole assassin. That's right. No conspiracy. No, just one angry, envious man who who wanted to propel himself into infamy. One lone man. I know it's more comforting to believe in plots because if Kennedy could be killed that easily by one sicko, what hope is there for the rest of us? I did like that interaction a lot. The the yeah. part about mm. it's comforting to believe that there's some conspiracy. So yeah, I I definitely I believe in the lone gunman theory, but I'm really interested in hearing what experts and when i say experts i'm looking at you chris uh, have have to say about both sides of the coin because i think there's there's probably some strong arguments either way okay and hayden you're the resident madman tell me that you have your tinfoil hat on what do you think no i'm a student of occam's razor i think that the if you line up all the possibilities then the simplest and most concise one is most likely the best one so i also think that oswald acted alone and uh, was the lone shooter i think I don't know if this is a cultural thing or not, but it does seem to me that, um, well, it might be because it happened in America, but uh, it does seem to me that uh, Americans are far more likely to engage in conspiracy theories. And it's for that exact reason that Matt was saying, you know, um, it's very off-putting to think that, you know, one person can go and change the world and in a bad way. Uh, but I do think that it fits in well with the themes of Quantum Leap as well, which is through the majority of the series that Sam is one person who is going to make the world better. So it would make sense to me that one person can do something that changes the world and changes it in a bad way. Uh, and yeah, so no, I agree with Quantum Leap. And I think like Matt too, it's mainly because of the fact that it's how I was um introduced to the JFK assassination as well. I tend not to engage in many conspiracy theories unless there's really substantial evidence. And uh, I occasionally do look, you know, look into something if it's, if it's put in front of me, but I'm not convinced by anything. So. Okay. Well, I, I, Matt, I, (laughs) I just have to laugh when you say the experts and then you mention me. (laughs) Um, I would never call myself an expert. Um, I have just, as a matter of course, become very versed mm. in all of this stuff because 1122 went on forever and we never stopped talking. Those podcasts are all like four hours long. So I have a lot of research under my belt when it comes to this. And I can emphatically say with all of my heart that any conspiracy is utter bullshit. Um, Oswald <laughs> acted alone. The conspiracy theorists, whatever flavor of conspiracy you want to buy into, anything that you throw up is based on supposition and coincidence and just this general distrust of the official line. When you look at the facts as we've been able to gather them, the fact that Oswald acted alone is not only probable, it's it's – it, there's really no other way to 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 look at it. He, 
I, I'm not saying this right because I know I'm just I, – I get so angry with this stuff because I was looking at that conspiracy theory stuff for so long <laughs> and going down so many rabbit holes with what about this one and what about this one that it, it really was difficult to sort of extricate myself from – that it, it's very like it's sexy, you know. There's, there's, it's very yeah. seductive to believe that you're coming on to some bigger truth. But at the end of the day, the facts as they stand, the only thing that they can actually support is that Oswald acted alone. It's just as simple as that. And any conspiracy that you want to throw up, you're on shaky ground. As far as I've been able to ascertain from all of my research and just personally what I believe happened. I, I think it was just Oswald acting alone. Well, the burden of proof is always on the person that makes the claim, isn't it? And I, I've never been able to see anything that anyone's presented to me to convince me. And um, But uh, I'm glad you asked that question at the very beginning, Chris, because you've kind of debunked a theory that I had. My theory was that uh, a person's enjoyment of this episode of Quantum Leap is directly proportional to your own beliefs about what happened at the time. And... Uh, Unfortunately, I don't have a control in this case in this case for this experiment because everyone seems to think he was the lone shooter. But <laughs> yeah, no one has any conflicting opinions on this. We're all just like, oh, whatever. <laughs> well, yeah. Chris, can I can I ask you something challenging? And and I, I don't know if you'll be able to answer this. Um, but the the reason I said I I kind of wanted to look to you as an expert wasn't so I could push making my mind up across to you and say, well, Chris, you you tell me, is it real or fake? Um, even though obviously you have very strong opinions on that but i i'm interested in both sides of this so what would you say if if you had to hang your hat on something that you think is probably the most appealing to the conspiracy theorists what element of the conspiracy do you think is the most plausible I don't think any or of them. the least implausible. Uh, no, see, here's the thing that this is you when you get into the historical context of the conspiracy. If you look at, say, um, the main theories that were um, ramrodded through uh, Oliver Stone's JFK, most of those hang on Jim Garrison and his crusade to sort of uncover a conspiracy and to convict somebody, aside from Oswald, in the murder of John F. Kennedy. But when you actually learn what kind of monster Jim Garrison was in real life and the tactics that he used to get his so-called witnesses and how unethical he was and just – the guy was a piece of shit – and the way he ramrodded things through the courts because of his position of power and the way he threatened people who later wanted to recant their stories, he threatened them with perjury. So he was of a mind that this could not have just been Oswald. And he went to great lengths and unethical lengths to gin up these trials. And in the process, he ruined a lot of people's lives. And... I'm getting into a lot of stuff that we've already discussed on 112263, so I can provide some links to that if you really want to hear about some of the conspiracy stuff, Matt. There's really none of it that I find plausible, and I think there's a very specific reason why Quantum Leap approached the conspiracy stuff the way it did, because there it's such a mess. It's such a gumbo. When you ask me, Matt, 
what is the most plausible? It's just like, okay, well, what do I want to include and what do I want to separate? Because as Al says in this episode, he mentions the CIA. He mentions the FBI. He mentions the mob. He mentions uh, <laughs> the who else? The military. He mentions the Secret Service. He mentions defense contractors. And you know what? All of that can be mix and match and dealer's choice just depending on what you want to believe about who killed JFK. Well, am I am I to uh, to get the impression here that the reason that we were excited to get to this one is because it's so messy? Is that how, what it is? Because I feel like I can agree on that point. I think like I was excited to talk about it because I find it very messy. So maybe it is very messy. Yeah. So yeah. maybe that's the connective tissue here. You know, it could be plus season five. <laughs> I just, didn't you hear me sing? Season five, the remix. (laughs) It took me a while to figure out what you were actually uh, going on about there, Chris. (laughs) I was looking forward to getting this because to to this because I just I love any excuse to watch this episode. It's not my favorite, but as I said at the start, I love some of the the choices that they make in the way it's presented. So it's not my go-to quantum leap. But when I'm pushed, as I, I, I am in, in prepping for the QLP recordings, uh, when I'm pushed into watching it, I, I'm glad to have the excuse. So that was why I was looking forward to this. I mean, I, I will say this. I agree, on, not to derail from what you're talking about, Chris, but just... No, um, it's fine. No, please, please. I've gone on and on and on about Lee Harvey Oswald <laughs> and the conspiracy more than you can ever know, Allison. <laughs> um, one of the things I do appreciate about this episode, because I, I don't hate it like I used to. I I did not like it the first time I saw it, but I do enjoy it now, and I enjoy that it's very cinematic and it's very different. So it's not like the first Quantum Leap episode I would think of, but I admired the ambition of it. I admired that it it looked like a movie. The the huge orchestra was just beautiful. So there were a lot of things to to enjoy about it, even if the topic uh, of the, the leap itself in particular was not something I was I was into as much. You know, I've got a funny story. A friend of mine named Gordon, who uh, wanted to be involved in the podcast but hasn't yet because I've been too lazy, um, like a good drug dealer, I got him hooked on Quantum Leap as well. And as we were watching the first few episodes, he says, you know, he could do just about anything. Could you imagine what it would be like if he leapt into the guy who shot JFK? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, I better put that episode on next. <laughs> Imagine no more, Gordon. Of course, the the first answer to that question, though, is no, that's ridiculous. He shouldn't be leaping into real historical situations and all the stuff <laughs> that Donald spent years saying was never going to happen. He used that example Did- specifically, too. There was an interview <laughs> where know. he's just like, oh, I wouldn't leap him into, you know... JFK or Lee Harvey Oswald, <laughs> that yeah. never happened. <laughs> it, it was always JFK or Marilyn Monroe. Never going to do either of those. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> well, here's the problem that I have with uh, celebrity leaps or gimmick leaps or um, big historical figure leaps. Um, well, I have a couple problems. Uh, you have one a problem is... with gimmick leaps, then we'll no, see like, you on the other like side of season leaps. five. <laughs> Gimmick leaps, I leaps. I don't like stunt uh, leap people, though. Um, I I don't like how uh, this isn't the case in this particular one, but I don't like when they get starstruck about it because uh, it just feels like we're watching them fanboy over something else. Um, and I don't like, and this is true of a lot of time travel properties. I 
I find it's a very fine line uh, between good and bad taste when you put your fictional characters in the middle of a real-life assassination mm-hmm. or someone's real murder or um, tragedy or anything like that. Because at the end of the day, this, this was huge and um, it was a president, but it, he was a person who was murdered. Uh, and if yeah. you... If this was someone that you knew personally, and then people were making movies and shows, and they're like, what if this character from the X-Files was around when they were killed? Or what if this, you know, you get all this stuff in there, and it's like, it just, it feels disrespectful for me. So, like, Mm. there's a fine line between including something historical and then trying to insert your characters into this scenario. You know, that's a good point, Allison, because... When I started researching this stuff, um, reading the King book and everything, to me, it was an abstract and a lot of boomer nostalgia. Like, yeah. I found it somewhat <laughs> annoying um, because it was just such a, a, a watershed moment, uh, not to steal from Stephen King, but that's what he he named the first the first part of 112263, a watershed moment. It was such a watershed moment. I thought you meant boomer nostalgia at first. He named it boomer nostalgia? I can't believe it. <laughs> he should have called it, okay, boomer. <laughs> Bold, very bold. (laughs) Getting to your point, to me, it was a very abstract thing. It was this historical event. And then as I got more into it, I got to know more about it. And then as the finale of 11-22-63, we went to Dealey Plaza, me and Albie and Skip. And um, we were up in the sixth floor museum where Oswald took the shots, right, the book depository. And when I was going through that... You know, just listening and watching, I I actually welled up with tears because I had been with this stuff for so long. And all of a sudden, this was a guy named John who was murdered. Mm -hmm. Not the president was assassinated and you hear Walter Cronkite's voice Mm -hmm. reading the newscast and all the conspiracy stuff. It, It struck me on a much more personal level. Because I had now a personal journey with it myself. Hmm. So what you're saying, I absolutely agree with. We we turn everything into such an abstract that is it in good taste to have like the time traveler go back and try to prevent this historical event. No, this was about, as uh, I'm going to seal from Skip, this was about a guy named John who was killed in Dallas that day. And it's tragic because he had a young family. And aside from the fact that he was a president, he was just, you know, anyway, so I, I can sort of see why it's still so viscerally um, emotional for so many people who actually lived through it, that um, when you bring up that point, Allison, I find it to be in bad taste as well. Well, I've got a question for you, Chris, and this is for everyone here. Just on that note, what's everyone's opinion about fictionalizing aspects of supposedly historical events. Like, we know that quite a lot of the stuff that happens in the leaps here in this episode are fictionalized. Like, in the the bar scene in Japan is a good example. Pretty much all of that is fictionalized. Do you think it's right to fictionalize stuff that you are portraying as historical? Or do you think it's acceptable because you're trying to make a good story? I think it depends on your intent. Since you asked me first, I'll answer first. Um, I think it's right if you are trying to give an accurate historical portrait and fictionalizing certain aspects of it, just bring out the, it helps streamline that process. But then if you think about, again, the nonsense that Stone is espousing in the JFK film, 
um, then I think it could be, you know, we, we talk about how manipulative that film was, very intentionally manipulative, and mixing real footage with fictional footage to the point where without a discerning eye, you wouldn't really be able to tell what's real and what's made up. And when you have an agenda like that, then to me, that's where it goes sour. But I guess that's all relative. Okay. Do you see what I'm saying? If if I think that that question, the answer to that question is predicated on, is this really showing what I believe to be the truth of that historical moment? And if it is, then, I, then I'm on board with this. If it isn't, then I have no use for it. So I think that that's a loaded question in many ways. But in general, I don't mind it if it's for broader educational purposes. Okay. I don't know if that's an answer, but that's that's sort of where I where well, I. Well, I was just with. interested in your opinion. That's all, and I'd be interested to hear Allison's and Matt's as well. I think it depends. I'm kind of on the same boat. Um, you know, if you are presenting it uh, in a dishonest or disrespectful way, uh, most famously the movie Green Book came out, and um, the it was so inaccurate that the black man that it was written about. His family disowned it because it was so about the white <laughs> character in it and it fictionalized all these aspects about him that didn't happen, like teaching him how to eat fried chicken and stuff like that. That didn't, <laughs> you know, that's just racist is what it is. But if you're trying to tell a good story and it is respectful, I think that's fine. It sh- it, it very much depends. It's, a, again, a fine line. Yeah, and I, I think as well, a lot of it depends on what's known and what couldn't possibly be known. So you, you talk about like the, the bar scene in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nobody was walking around uh, filming Lee Harvey Oswald's life. So there was bound to yeah. be stuff that happened that we didn't see that in order to, to form a good story, you've, you've got to take a bit of a guess at this. This might have happened. This could have happened. Maybe something similar to this happened. And that explains how we get from point A, which is historical fact, to point B, which is historical fact. Uh, but Donald Belisario met him for two minutes. I think well, yeah. he knows what happened. <laughs> he knows what happened. But what? And, and we we get this in other historical leaps, and and we've got a couple more coming up in season five that are like this, where there's bound to be a certain amount of fictionalization. Sure. But this is the only one that opens with the caption: "This is based on known evidence and established facts," which does give a, a slightly disingenuous um, implication that there's more fact in this than there is uh, guesswork based on that two-minute chat. This is based on that one time I met Lee Harvey Oswald, and (laughs) I got very mad at that JFK movie. (laughs) (laughs) I'm coming off like a dick, I'm sorry. No, I I agree, though, and I think... um, that that caption's kind of cool, and it it's, it goes along with this whole stylistic thing of this feeling a lot more like a a movie than a double length episode of Quantum Leap. Um, but that caption does also then present a problem when we start fictionalizing this stuff. So I have mixed feelings about it in in the context of this episode. In the context of later leaps, I'm a lot more relaxed about it. Hayden, you asked the question, what is what is your thoughts on uh, fictionalizing historical people and the stories? Well, the reason I asked is because I'm also in two minds about it. I think 
the story that they did tell in this episode of Quantum Leap was respectful and it was entertaining, so I think I can forgive it. But at the same time, when it says it's based on the evidence that's been collected over the 30 or so years since the assassination, I'd be expecting it to be historically accurate as well. Yeah. So, look, I can forgive it because I know it's an episode of television which ultimately is supposed to be for entertainment purposes, but I think that... They've drawn a very fine line, and I'm not sure whether or not I believe they've crossed it. And this actually, this comes back, I mentioned earlier that I had another question for Chris, um, and this this kind of ties in with that quite neatly, which is, how much do we know about the personality of Lee Harvey Oswald um, in relation to how he's portrayed in this episode? And, and let, let me qualify why I'm asking this, because if this were purely fictional, if, if this were totally written out of Donald Belisario's mind and not based on anything historical, my criticism of this episode would be that he is presented as this twitchy, creepy, crazy, very sweaty guy <laughs> that, that is impossible to like, and he turns out to be an assassin. And as a work of fiction, I would find it much more interesting if he was a sympathetic character who was a nice guy that just had some extreme views. Um, but I don't know if that's because of the historical evidence, if we know that Lee was actually a dick. From all accounts that I've come across, Lee was a dick. <laughs> okay, all right. He was insecure. <laughs> Do you see the, the the very first scene in this? Um, yeah. And we should probably get into the episode proper. And I, we, <laughs> we, we, can, we can hop into it. But from all accounts that I've read, that sweaty, twitchy persona is drawn from real life. It's okay. not put upon him Good. because he was the monster that killed the president. He was very insecure. He was very um, political, but at the same time, very malleable. And he could have been a patsy, and not in the sense of like a conspiracy, but he was gullible to people who he thought were smarter and like embracing their ideals and especially his whole thing with being a Marxist and being a communist and sort of railing against the American system. I mean, the guy defected to Russia, for God's sakes. And I think this is what Belisario is talking about with the established facts as we know them. Anything that you saw Oswald do in this, whether they dramatize that bar fight or not, I think that bar fight is where we veer more into this is what we need to establish the fiction of this mm -hmm. and to establish the fictional stakes. And we can get there. But all the stuff that we saw here um, was snippets from Oswald's life, as we've discovered since since his murder, since since he died. He had diaries. He did go to Russia. He was stationed here. He was stationed there. He was a, a communist. He was someone that was supporting Castro in Cuba. So I think that when they put that title card up, again, it was a specific refutation of all of the the ooh the JFK film where they just throw out every single theory you can think <laughs> yes. of and just move it such a it, it's such a masterfully made film and it moves at such a fast clip that you're in the middle of one conspiracy theory and then they throw another one out at you and then before you could think about that one there's a third one coming up and then on the screen there's another picture that's not really jiving with what anybody's saying but it's like a fourth conspiracy and it's all innuendo none of it holds together upon closer inspection 
Whereas this is just sort of snippets of Oswald's life that can be verified. He did defect to Russia. He did give them information about the U-2. He did take that picture in that backyard. I've been in that backyard. We took a mock picture of me holding an umbrella in a newspaper, <laughs> um, the umbrella for the Kirkano. But um, I have no problem with, with them putting that title card up at the beginning because of that. That's kind of what I assume, too. The stuff about his diary and, and stuff like that was what they were basing it on, because you couldn't possibly know every single aspect of someone's life, so you have to try and fill in the gaps. Exactly. And from every other um, source that um, I've I've come across is that Oswald also was a blowhard and very easily offended and a braggart. And um, again, just this is the last time I'll rehash something we've already discussed on 1122. But when Marina and Oswald's brother went to see him after the assassination, when he was in custody, both of them said that Oswald was sitting in the cell uh, with sort of a smug look on his face. And they said that he was very easily offended and very easily like wounded. And if he had not done it, he would have been crowing at the top of his lungs that he was being unfairly persecuted and that uh, the system was against him and it was just the petty bourgeois once again, you know, oppressing the worker and all the bullshit that he liked to spout. They both came away with the fact that he was calm and self-satisfied. They were, oh yeah, he did it. Yeah, um, they, they had no doubt. Subsequent interviews have revealed. So Oswald was a very bellicose paper tiger. And the sweaty, twitchy, you know, <laughs> jerk that they present in a lot of the popular media. I thought it was very interesting that he was a, a uh, character seems wrong, but a character in the context of this episode with very little redeeming values about him. And there were only a few moments that really humanized him. Uh, it was really kind of chilling when um, he's getting ready to go out with the gun and go to the book depository and all that. And he, he wakes up, he tucks in his baby, he kisses his little girl, and then he goes, gets ready to kill someone. Yeah. Like, just goes about it like it's a normal morning. But that scene where he takes the, the wedding ring off and puts it in the teacup. Yeah. That's actual history. They like, that's documented, you know? So like I said, even that, like those little touches are true to the historical record. On the subject of Oswald's characterization, do you think they could have found anyone worse to actually play Lee Harvey Oswald in the waiting room? <laughs> I, I just cannot, I, I can't accept that Carrie Bradshaw's sassy gay friend is this masculine, <laughs> this manly masculine marine with murder on his mind. I, I can't accept it. I don't know if Lee Harvey Oswald was a very masculine guy, though, was he? I mean... Well, he was in the Marines, so... You don't have to be masculine, but... Maybe that's just my romanticised view of Marines. I don't know. But to me, it doesn't seem to match with the persona that Sam takes on when he goes into Oswald mode. And you think that the characterization should be the same, considering it's the same person. I think that maybe you're just bringing the baggage of the actor, yeah. because you know him he, in, in a somewhat iconic role, especially for Willie Garson. Well, that might be the case. I found Willie Garson a little more believable as Oswald than as, like, a young 
boy and play it again Seymour. <laughs> but yeah, it was a little bit weird. But I don't know enough about the historical person to say if it was inaccurate or not. Although I don't think he looked that close to him from pictures. No. But I could see that like Scott Bakula was trying to play him very kind of weaselly and kind of, he was kind of trying to do it. I could see. Visually, it's definitely a very weird casting choice when they actually went to efforts to open the episode with a photo montage of the real guy. Yeah. And I think his performance is fine. Um, I I disagree with you guys, but um, I I like his performance. But yeah, he doesn't look anything like Lee, and we've just been presented with a lot of photos of him. So um, yeah, suspend disbelief and all that. I don't necessarily think his performance was bad, one moment aside, but (laughs) I think like... (laughs) Um, no, I, th- I think he did fine. I just don't know how accurate it is because I just don't have enough information. I just found him a little bit weird, but Lee Harvey Oswald seemed like a very weird person to begin with. So maybe, maybe that was the idea. Well, maybe it's just me not being able to connect the two people as being the same, like Willie Garson's interpretation of Lee Harvey Oswald compared to Scott Bakula's interpretation of Lee Harvey Oswald. To me, they don't match. And it seems to me that Scott Bakula's version would be the one, at least in my view, what would be the most realistic. And maybe I'm entirely wrong in it. And Willie Garson's is the the perfect one. And Scott Bakula's is the one that's uh, been taken to the extreme. But this is, I think, the only thing about the episode I don't like. And that's the portrayal of the actual Lee Harvey Oswald in the waiting room. But I love everything else. Hayden, how how do you struggle to connect the two when they do such a brilliant job of all the ADR going back and forth? <laughs> let, let's, let's, talk, let's talk about the fact that they speak with each other's voices sometimes. Well, I just want to say real quick, I just want to say real quick before we get into that, though, I, mean, I no, do want to get into that. I do want to get into that, actually. Okay. <laughs> but um, <laughs> let's call this what this is. This is an uh, a biographical picture of Lee Harvey Oswald starring Scott Bakula with some Quantum Leap mixed in. Yes. And yeah. in that exactly. sense, yeah. it feels like Scott Bakula is playing the more handsome version <laughs> of Lee Harvey Oswald <laughs> through a lot of this. Yes. When they're like mixing the two together, it's, it can be a little off-putting because I don't know how... <sighs> believable Scott Bakula is is this very weaselly kind of character though I found it very interesting the uh, the blending of the two characters when they have them speaking with each other's voices at least in this case it it was weird but it uh it made it a little clearer when whatever character was speaking through the other character and I think this is the first time we've seen like a leapy having residuals from Sam talking as Sam I believe it is. Well, it's only the second episode where we even see the Leapy in the waiting room anyway. So, But I do have to say, though, the introduction of the scenes in the waiting room from Elite Felisa onwards are a very nice change in um, yeah. the series itself. They're some of my favourite scenes in the entire series, aside from the Lee Harvey Oswald ones, obviously. Um, the ones from Elite Felisa and also the ones from Return and Revenge of the Evil Leaper, they're awesome yeah so yeah definitely some good ones coming up yeah it was a great expansion of the mythology i'm glad that we got to see more of what was going on um if you guys want to see a more nuanced and actually riveting portrayal of oswald in my opinion gorson was gorson he was basically a cipher in this they needed an oswald in the waiting room i guess um but 
the Hulu series 112263, which was based on the Stephen King book, um, we reviewed it at length. And that series is shit. I'm here to tell you. James Franco is awful. <laughs> the writing is awful. What? I loved it. I so did I. How dare you? I, I really enjoyed it. But Daniel Weber portrayed Oswald in that, and he was so good. So if you want to see a better portrayal of Oswald and probably more true to how he really was than Daniel Weber in 112263, if you can scare it up on the internet, I'd recommend watching just the scenes with him because uh, he was by far the most entertaining part of that series. So again, I said I'd stop talking about it. Now I'm really going to stop talking about it. Let's get back to Quantum Leap. Um, <laughs> can, and- can I ask another ADR question? Given the fact that we've now established that smoking cigars all your life does nothing to change your voice, as per Leap for Lisa, <laughs> why, why didn't Donald Belisario ADR over his younger self? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what up with that, Belisario? Yeah, consistency, man. It's almost like it's it would be silly to do such a thing. <laughs> almost as silly as, okay, I have to bring it up. I have to bring it up. This was supposed to be a very serious moment in the episode when Lee Harvey Oswald looks down and he sees Sam's reflection. Oh, oh and God. It's just Scott Bakula's face as he's screaming. <laughs> <laughs> It just is hilarious. I crack up every time I see it. I know. What's wrong with that? The The audio is a genuine scream, but it's like Scott is mouthing a scream and yeah, not yeah. doing it out loud. And it's like, dude, they, they're going to dub over you. You can actually scream if you want, and they're not going <laughs> to hear you in, in post-production. That's fine. But yeah, he, he kind of mimes a scream. What's that all about? And then there's some warp in the audio, too. Did you guys notice it? It does, like, this, like, click in the middle of the scream. <laughs> this might be something to do with the master or something, but it's very weird sounding. Now, what struck me most about that scene is if you're in a waiting room in a time travel experiment and you are basically the unwitting subject of said experiment, um, why would they put the one thing in that room which would traumatize you the most? A mirror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it just it doesn't make sense to me that the console has a mirror on it. I think they call it the reflective lights. I don't think that it actually is a mirror. Well, they could have made it without any reflective surfaces. That was a design choice by somebody <laughs> at the project going, hey, we, we need a desk with, that's like highly, highly shiny. Yeah, if that was a reflective surface, there's nothing under that surface but silver. I mean, that was a mirror. <laughs> yeah, I always found the portrayals of the waiting room more interesting in the books than in the show. Like the room itself, not the, I mean, I find the, the scenes with Al interacting with the leapies very interesting, but I feel like the, I mean... It's just the blue screen. It's just the blue screen, yeah. and they've put a table in there. I guess because that's that's what they had. But uh, it just like I feel like if you're gonna have a time travel project where people are coming in regularly, you want to kind of calm them down. They might be chilling there for a few days instead of giving them like this mirror to sleep on. Maybe you can give them like a real bed and maybe some like reading material from the time period or like, you know, just yeah. some sort of stuff to kind of comfort them instead of just a big empty blue room with a table in the middle. What's that about? Have you seen in, in one of the comics you get to see it before the waiting room appears in on screen, um, they attempted it in one of the comics and it's this massively high tech stuff going on there's all kinds of screens and gadgets and gizmos 
That, that's even scarier, to be Why honest. would you have that in there, though? And then, like, yeah. <laughs> you would see all that stuff. And then it would, if they remembered any of it when they went back, it just screw up the timeline. Yeah. Project Quantum Leap screwing up there. <laughs> well, I understand their use of a really sterile-looking environment. It's just they should have made it make more sense. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're talking about the, the audio, Allison, I didn't notice the glitch, but um, Matt, I'd like you to discuss a little bit because we got a very special Matt Dale version <laughs> of this episode to watch. And I have to tell you, I watched it first. My first rewatch was on NBC app. And then um, Matt provided a streaming version of it that we were able to look at. But um, you worked on this thing pretty hard so what made this version what made the version that you gave to us so special oh man i'm, I'm worried now it's one of these things that i i'm going to point out and once if you haven't spotted it then when you do it will ruin season five for you uh, uh you can't just say that and then say i'm not going to talk about that i ruined season five what are you talking about <laughs> so there was um I, all right so there was there was a couple of things that prompted me to do this fan edit that that we ended up using in, in prep for this show one of which is, um, which I think is is pretty common knowledge, that this was aired as a double-length episode and then split into two parts for syndication. And because of the additional credit sequences and previously ons, they had to cut some, some bits out for time. So there's two versions of this anyway. And on the DVD releases, they always use the double-length versions, which is great. But when it came to the HD versions on streaming and on Blu-ray, for the most part, they use the two-part version. The UK Blu-ray is the only exception. In the UK, we got the, the double-length version in HD. So for a start, that's the only way to see the proper unedited version in high def. But then there's a couple of other issues. Um, and one of them affects every commercial release of season five. And I, I've gotten more. I, I've, I've imported DVDs from all over the world. And there's an issue that's bugged season five ever since, or on every every release since its first broadcast. And that's that, for some reason, there's a um, the first clip of the opening credit sequence the, of, of the shot flying through the clouds is removed and all the audio is shunted up. And it's all completely out of sync. And, that, and that's why at the end of the credit sequence, the, the, the logo fades down and the music keeps rolling for a little bit longer and, and fades out over a black screen. It's an absolute mess. And wh when you realise that, it, I, uh, some people don't appreciate the Season 5 theme tune as much as I do and maybe cover their ears during that. But um, <laughs> for, for somebody like me who does like that theme, it really pisses me off. So... Um, so the first thing I, I, I really wanted to do, um, and I will get around to doing for the rest of season five at some point, is I inserted that clip of the clouds back in, shifted everything back up, and the music, the, the, the clips now fit with the music better. The other thing, and thank you for indulging me, um, the other thing is with Lee Harvey Oswald, the saga cell and the credits are very slightly different to the rest of season five. There's a couple of different clips that were chosen, and... Um, when they were remastering them for DVD and for Blu-ray, they just did the, the typical lazy thing that happens a lot with home video remastering. They remastered once for season five and then copied across the whole year. So um, on, on DVD and Blu-ray and streaming, you see the standard season five saga cell and, and opening credits. So what scenes are different? Because I don't think I've seen the different one that you're talking about. So um, in the saga cell, 
they switch round. Uh, usually in season five, you're used to the final leap out being, so help me God, he waves, he leaps out, and then he leaps into the cold open. Yeah. In Lee Harvey Oswald, the final clip is from a uh, single drop of rain, which in the rest of season five is a bit earlier on. So they've, they've, they swap those round, basically. And... Um, the some of the clips are slightly different length, so it's not just a matter of sw- swapping them around. I actually had to go back to the original episodes to um, lift the right clips out. So that's the saga cell is basically just in a different order. Okay. In the opening credits, the bit where uh, from Song for the Soul, where Sam gets dragged on stage and he's kind of stumbling around a bit, in Lee Harvey Oswald, it's another bit from that same sequence where the song ends. And he turns round to look at the camera and looks a bit confused. I like that because Sherry is looking at him like, what? what? <laughs> and immediately before that, there's... And you, you wouldn't notice this unless you're lining them up like I, I did. But um, there's the bit where uh, Al's head is poking up through the floor uh, from Permanent Wave. And they use a different clip of that. So usually it's a clip of Al kind of looking from left to right. Uh, but in Lee Harvey Oswald, it's a clip of him looking up at Sam. Oh, okay. It's like it's two or three seconds before or after it. So it's just for whatever reason, after they made Lee Harvey Oswald, they they made those tweaks, put that in place for uh, Leaping of the Shrew up to Memphis Melody, but then retrospectively added that back in for every home video version of Lee Harvey Oswald. So. I fix that because that kind of thing bothers me. <laughs> I love it. You said the things about the intro was going to ruin season five for us? Yeah, I think that the season five theme tune, when you notice that the clips are out of sync to the music, um, you realise what a mess it is. That didn't ruin it. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't bother me, but I get it being bothersome. I don't like when there's weird errors or uh, changes that they don't fix, but... uh, I don't know. I see the season five theme as kind of like the ABC rap remix, you know? Like, they're like, this is so cool. How dare you? The fact. I love the ABC rap. (laughs) Oh, yeah, fair point. Fair point. And uh, yeah, I love that it was Scott Bakula's idea. Hmm? Scott Bakula. Scott, I should play my own father, Bakula, is like, hey, let's change up the theme song. This is going to be peppy and it's going to be great. And everyone was like, <laughs> well, I mean, wow. We still haven't talked about Lee Harvey Oswald yet. And I, uh, we, we've talked. I think, you know, we've talked. We have. Because we're talking about history, we're still talking about what is going on in the episode because a lot of it is based on things that happened historically. So I think we have been getting into it. But I think, like, um, there is a lot of stuff about Quantum Leap stuck in here that I do quite like. Yeah, I, I've ticked off quite a few of my notes already. Okay, good. Al- although it's been a bit of an odd format. I mean, yeah, we have been talking about history, Alison. You're right about that, and sort of the history that's sprinkled in this. And of course, how are you going to start off the Lee Harvey Oswald episode? It's going to be with that photo, mm. that famous photo of him holding the rifle and the newspaper and having Sam leap into that. I mean, it's it's kind of like historical icon right there. So right there, we had a huge paradigm shift to Quantum Leap and... I don't remember if I was shocked at the end of season four when I saw him leap into Lee Harvey Oswald as much as I think I rolled my eyes a little bit. <laughs> like, what? 
<laughs> they're going there? How are they going to do that? Going back to the question you asked at the start about how old we were when we first saw this in the context, um, speaking as a Brit who was 12 at the time, I distinctly remember at the end of Leap for Lisa turning to my mum and saying, what? What, what's, what's what's the big deal? He's 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 standing in a very poorly constructed garden set, and it looks like we're meant to recognise this photo. Is this a who? What? As a cliffhanger, it's terrible if you don't actually understand what's going on. No, it's terrible if you do. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I find it weird too. She calls him Lee in the uh, the season four ending. But then in the season five opener, she calls him Alec because that was what he was going by with her. But I think they just did that because they're like, this. we need it to be clearer what's going on. Yes. So she's just like, look, Lee, look. I'm surprised she didn't say, look, Lee Harvey Oswald, hold up your gun. <laughs> yeah, that would have helped me. <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald, sit still for this photo. <laughs> and don't you think about killing any presidents. Um, <laughs> oh, we, we, we talked a little bit about this in... Um, in the last podcast, but yeah, I, I think some of that also comes down to the fact that that scene was obviously tacked on very quickly, and I suspect before they'd even started writing the season five opener. Sure, so I, I'm not sure they even would have made a conscious decision. Oh, we we can't use the same script because it'll have been just right. Let's just do this. We'll figure a way out of it later. Do you think it was that haphazard? This is why I asked this, because I really don't know what was going on behind the scenes. And I know that they were sort of scrambling to maybe secure season five and that um, this was a bid for them to appease the network, to have Sam leap into Lee Harvey Oswald as an event. But this script is so, it's so intricate. I think they're making a compromise because uh, the network did want famous leaps and you know they were like we, we need more um historical figures and stuff and that was something donald belisario wasn't interested in but he became interested because of the conspiracy stuff going on with the jfk movie um because of his personal experience and it was just something he was inspired by that he's like okay here is a way that we can do this um because he probably didn't have an interest in i mean why would you this is about him changing history so you're like we already know what happened but now he mm -hmm. has all of this stuff to work with and this experience to draw on to piece this thing together so but i think they were going to do something else that's just this is just my personal opinion i don't have anything to back this up but i i think they were going to do a completely different ending and then last minute they decided they were going to do that for whatever reason well, there's, there's some evidence that they were looking at opening season five with Magnum P.I., which we, we spoke right. about last time as well. And the fact that they refilmed the cliffhanger with a different actress, a much more believable location. You know, again, we, we spoke about that before. It's, it's quite obvious that that end of season four cliffhanger was shot independently of uh, the resolution, which is unusual. If they were planning it, they would have filmed it with the actors that they were planning. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like they did with The Leap Back. The Leap Back, I believe, they, they filmed that ending along with season three and then continued yeah. from there. And if I can add to your speculation as well, based on what Don Belisario said, how he wanted to refute the Oliver Stone movie, it's quite possible that he kind of had this outline of what he wanted to do just to tell the story, but maybe hadn't thought of doing it as a Quantum Leap episode and then thought, oh, well, we've got the ability for this character to travel through different parts of his lifetime. Why don't we just put Sam in there and, and then we can tell this story? So, <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and if you want to talk about like re- reasons for doing this, one of the big things that Donald Belisario wanted, uh, one of the audiences he wanted to appeal to was uh, boomers, boomer nostalgia. And what's more boomer nostalgia than JFK? So that's like the perfect, if you're going to go into historical leaps, that is the one to do if that is the audience that you're trying to reach out to. And that photo is so iconic that it speaks for itself. So I can understand if they were going to slap something together in preparation for Don writing this over the hiatus. You know, it's just like a no-brainer of where of where to start with it. Well, it's either that or you start in the book depository. Exactly, you know, like- exactly. But while we're on that subject, I was just going to ask, um, I'm in the same boat as Matt. I'm not an American. I didn't know who Lee Harvey Oswald was because I was very young and obviously not an American. Um, what were your reactions, um, Chris and Allison, as the resident Americans here, when you did see um, that he was going to leap into Lee Harvey Oswald? Did you immediately know who it was? And did you? Um, how did you feel when you saw that that was going to be the case? Well, I I just mentioned a little bit earlier that I I sort of rolled my eyes um, (laughs) when I saw it, and I was a little bit confused by the fact that he was an historical figure. But, oh, I for sure knew it was Lee Harvey Oswald because that is one of the most iconic photos in American history. So it is very shorthand for the Kennedy assassination for any American of a certain age. I can't speak for Allison because she's a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, look, I'm I'm 30, and when he was assassinated before I was born – um, he was assassinated before all of us were born, Alison. Just to be clear on this, even Chris. <laughs> well, all I of us. Waiting, I, thank I, you. I apologize. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to call you guys oldsters. Um, <laughs> I apologize. Um, no, I, I just don't have. I don't have that nostalgia. The only thing, my context for JFK stuff is that a lot of movies and TV shows cover this at some point, and it always is the one that I'm just not that interested in. Um, it, Probably because it's just not my genre. Uh, I, I'm not really into political intrigue and stuff like that. And a lot of them get into these like very talky, like who's behind this and who what what would the world be like if JFK wasn't assassinated and stuff like that. Where it just is not in my nostalgia. It's not something that I've been particularly interested in. Um, when I saw this, this was like. Um, I don't know, five or six years ago when I first watched Quantum Leap. So this was way after any of this stuff was was even relevant in the um, pop culture. Like in 91, this was big in pop culture because of that movie, because of the JFK movie. So it was on everyone's minds again. So uh, I already knew from like reading IMDb descriptions it was coming. I don't have any like surprise here. I watched them all on DVD, so I, I wasn't particularly surprised. I think I wasn't looking forward to it, but... um the best part about this episode really is uh, when I'm watching it, uh, it's usually with my boyfriend and he hates this episode so much that like <laughs> I enjoy watching him hate it. So that's why <laughs> you two have an interesting relationship. Maybe we should have gotten him on the podcast too. <laughs> it's so funny though. So that's, that's the entertainment I get, <laughs> get out of watching this. <laughs> I'm going off on a tangent here. Uh, I didn't have any particular reaction to the photo. Uh, I just knew that it was going to be a JFK episode. Um, And I've, over the years, this is what it's like. I'm rambling and rambling. But um, this is what it's like with episodes I don't particularly like. I hate it until I like it again. (laughs) So, so like, I just, like, I... I learn to enjoy the things that I think aren't that great. Or pick out the things that I think were great or could have been great. So, um... 
so I don't hate watching this episode. Uh, just took me a bit to get into it. Alison, would you describe your appreciation of Quantum Leap episodes like a string where at one end is hatred and the other end is love? <laughs> and if you tie the string up... No, all right, sorry. I cut that. That was terrible. I don't know where that came from. That was awesome. It came from deep down in your geek geek heart, and I love it. Thank you. Uh, we can just linger on that photo a little longer. I think another reason why Belisario wanted to use it is that that photo has long been blasted by the conspiracy theorists as a fake. They're saying that Oswald's angle in that is really weird and he wouldn't be standing and the, like, the, the measurements of the gun are out of proportion and the shadows are wrong. And, and we didn't go to the moon! Right. Um, <laughs> what no conspiracy theorist will ever cop to is the fact that that photo was one of three on a single negative. <laughs> so... It was Oswald standing with the newspaper and the gun, and then there are two more after that in the same yard with him, like, holding the gun at a different angle, one with his foot up. So that photo is not a fake. And Al even said, oh, that photo, you know, that's a famous fake. That's a fake. That photograph is a fake. Yeah, Oswald's face is superimposed on somebody else's body to frame him. The fact that Al's really into the conspiracy stuff is very in character. It is. Oh, okay, so let's get into that. I wanted to talk about that because there are two things I really want to talk about here, and they both do with Sam and Al. And the first we've talked about a little bit, but it's like sort of the whole Sam-Oswald dynamic. But the second one is in tracing the conspiracy. Can you guys tell me why, aside from, you know, story reasons, do you think Al believes so heavily in the conspiracy theories or the fact that there is a conspiracy? Because it's more comforting to believe in conspiracies yeah, than to believe, you know, that, like, someone like JFK or, like, a president of the United States could be killed. Um, I, I think it's partially that, and I think it's also, like, Al is just, like, he just, he just gravitates toward conspiracies. I think he just, that's just how his mind works. Like, there's something else going on here. Al is a believer. And we've talked about this in so many previous episodes that have had a paranormal bent to them. Al is always the one to jump to the unusual but dramatic explanations. And that could then also tie in slightly with Belisario's perspective um, that, hey, you know, the, the kind of people that are going to believe in conspiracy theories are the kind of people that are going to believe in ghosts and goblins and the Bermuda Triangle. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it's also, that aside, it is kind of, it is kind of in keeping in that respect. Well, and he's always the counterpoint, too. Al is always yes. the counterpoint, and that is the counterpoint to this, where Sam believes um, wholeheartedly that he is the only one that is acting in this situation. And that's why I preface it by saying why, aside from story reasons, and that is clearly the biggest story reason. Well, I was going to add a story reason as well. I do agree with what Allison and Matt have said about him always believing in the conspiracy and everything else that's out there to you know, um, hurt you. But also he was very high up in the military. I think he's probably seen a lot of conspiracies actually come to pass. Mm. Mm -hmm. True. That's true. You think about it, Project Quantum Leap could be part of a conspiracy theory of some sort, right? Like all these former Leapies running around saying... Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's, that's sheet lightning. It's Ignore that. <laughs> the weather balloon. The first conspiracy yeah. theory. Well, while we're on that, I was just wondering, we're kind of heading into... Very shallow quantum deep territory, but I just wanted to ask, what do you think the original mission statement of Project Quantum Leap was? Because I can't see any government agency ever giving approval for someone to go back in time and change things 
and when you've got no idea of what's actually going to happen if they do that. It seems to me that the main mission of Project Quantum Leap was probably to observe the past, maybe to try and figure out, you know, solve mysteries that have gone on in the past, like the JFK assassination, perhaps. So if you thought about it that way, I think we can forgive the paradigm shifts of this episode because it probably fits in best with what the original, the original, you know, official intention of Project Quantum Leap was. We know subconsciously Sam always wanted to make the world a better place, but remember in Genesis, Sam and Al had no idea that uh, he would only leap if he put something right that once went wrong. It was a theory by Ziggy and they both passed it off as crap to start with until they realised it was their best option to, to get him to leap. So, if you think about it that way, this episode's probably the best one for trying to keep Project Quantum Leap alive if they still had the problems with their funding. I agree with you, but I think it's um, there's a difference between what the concept... And I, I, I know this is stating the obvious, but just bear with me. There's a difference between what the concept of the show was and what the concept of the project was. And yes, yeah. I think it's even talked about in one of the novels a bit, but it, it's, it seems very likely that the original concept of the project within the fiction was to observe rather than to change. But that's true of a lot of long-running dramas where something's gone wrong and that's what's created the drama. You wouldn't have brought the USS Voyager home halfway through the show and said, well, you know, they're they're just going to piss around the Alpha Quadrant like the Enterprise D did for a few years, because uh, that's what they were originally meant to be doing. The whole concept was Voyager was trying to get home. The whole concept of Quantum Leap is putting right what once went wrong. Mm. Until it wasn't. <laughs> Until it wasn't. So I struggle to forgive the paradigm shift, as you put it, Hayden, um, in this, uh, as much as I, I love it as an episode, so I forgive it for that reason. But I still think it's um, a leap too far in some respects. I mean, like, Sam doesn't change anything that we don't already know. They do add that twist that does, like, uh, it does justify it in some way. Actually, he does change a couple of things. He does, this is fictionalized, of course, but he does say, well, I shouldn't say save the life. He doesn't kill the general in the Japanese bar. It's not the general, Sergeant Lopez. Yeah, Sergeant Lopez. Thank you. Yeah, so he doesn't kill Sergeant Lopez, and that is considered to be one of the wrongs that he's supposed to put right in amongst these leaps, because then Sergeant Lopez goes and saves more people in Vietnam. But I do know what you mean about how it, it kind of seems like he's there without any wrongs to put right, at least until the end. I do agree with you, but, you know, he does actually put at least one wrong right. In the episode, he does right some wrongs. In the end, they say, you saved Jackie too. That is a wrong that he writes, you know. But uh, in the historical context, we know what really happened in history, and it went exactly like history went. Um, so if you can't get behind that idea, um, I can totally see why someone would really just find this episode pointless. Well... It is kind of pointless, and maybe we're getting more into the meat of it, but can we linger on that fight scene for a little longer? Sure. Yeah. Because as much as um, I think a lot of people think that that scene is too long and it drags the episode to a halt, but I think that scene sets up some- I like that scene a lot, actually. <laughs> That's one of my favorite scenes. Well, oh, good. <laughs> All right. 
When I say a lot of people, I'm just used to talking to Skip about this, and he hated that scene. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But what I liked about that scene is that it established some very key things that were very important for this episode. Even though it was, it was kind of long, it established, number one, and this is the chief as far as I'm concerned, that Sam is capable of killing as Oswald. Mm-hmm. Because until Al gets through to him, there's no telling if he would have pulled that trigger or not. Because Oswald had completely taken over. And the next thing that it establishes right in the same scene, right in the next breath, is that Al can get through to Sam somehow. And that becomes very important when he's in the book depository. And then the third one, of course, is that, okay, well, here is a wrong, as Hayden just correctly pointed out, that he put right that he, he quote, saved Lopez Mm -hmm. from being murdered and as a result saved all those soldiers from what, I don't remember, somewhere in Vietnam. So. I, I think that it really did set a lot of important narrative groundwork that came into play later in the episode. Even though, sure. I'm sorry, I think it went on too long and I hated that character. That guy was such a dick for no reason. It was just like, let's get a dick drill sergeant in because because military. I, wh- what? Well, it could so. just be that Oswald had really pissed this guy off, you know, all through the time that he was stationed underneath Sergeant Lopez and, um, you know, the two personalities just clash. He's probably not like that with everyone else. <laughs> no, well, Oswald probably was. Um, and he called him Sergeant Beaner. I love that because that <laughs> is so unlike Sam. Aye, aye, Sergeant Beaner. Sam is so scummy in this. So scummy. I have to say, I've given Scott a lot of shit over the last year or so that we've been doing the podcast that he can do anything except play mad. But <laughs> when I saw the first scene between him and Natasha... I was I was wrapped, and that's a part of this episode that came alive for me in this latest viewing for the first time. And I don't know if I've ever seen Scott give a better performance than he has in this. He was so good in this, yeah. and all the nuance, and I think all like playing against type. Usually, I don't like that when I see it from him because I think he has certain strengths, and he shouldn't veer away from them. But boy, he freaking nailed it in this one. Watching him be able to switch effortlessly and immediately between the two personalities of Sam and Oswald is unbelievable. You know, I think that's probably the best acting, apart from maybe shock theatre, that we actually do get to see from Scott Bakula. So, yeah, big props to him for that. Yeah, this is um, this is the part of the episode that I'm really into. It's the psychological aspect. It's the fact that Sam is slowly becoming a killer. And this is just a total horror show for him. He He's becoming um, racist and violent and sexist and uh, all of these things that Sam Beckett is not. And so you get to see this this transformation back and forth, this Jekyll and Hyde with with Lee Harvey Oswald with him, I find just fascinating. Um, that's why I liked the bar scene a lot. Like, Look, you're not supposed to be rooting for Sam in that scene. He was <laughs> being a racist yeah. asshole. <laughs> like, when he started this fight, this fight, and even before that, when he's interacting with Mariska, he is abusive. He's grabbing her by the neck as he's making out with her. He's just being this total reprehensible person. And the fact that he's horrified by these things that he's doing, but he can't stop himself or can barely stop himself... Uh, is just fascinating to me. I loved him in that scene. Well, not loved him, but I loved the performance in that scene. I found it very interesting. Um, I didn't really understand Al in that scene so much. 
Okay, which so, so elaborate a little bit. So let's let's unpack it a bit. Okay, I realize I'm going off on several different tangents here, but uh, <laughs> so so uh, Sam, I understand in that scene. Um, he is Lee Harvey Oswald at that moment. Uh, he's starting this bar fight. Uh, he's attacking Mariska. All of this stuff. Al comes in. He sees Sam with his hand around a woman's throat, making out with her, and he's just like, <laughs> "Oh, making out, Sam. This is great." Looks like my libido finally kicked in. And then when, so just pretend he didn't see that. Just pretend he didn't see that. Okay, so Sam walks away and she's crying. She's like, Lee, no. And then Al's looking at her cleavage before leaving. And it's like, you know something bad has just happened and he's still leering at her. I don't understand that. And then I don't understand after that he starts the fight. Sam is calling him racist names. He's saying homophobic things to him. All of this sort of shit to start this bar fight. And he's rightfully getting his ass kicked. And then Al is, like, rooting for him in the fight. So far as he's, like, going, like, into the fight. And they have, like, these uh, blue screen shots where he's, like, punching people. Like, he's rooting for him. And I just don't feel like it was the right tone. Because, like, Al is not... He's not merging with Lee Harvey Oswald, so it just feels like he's rooting for this, like, reprehensible person. No, I disagree with you there, Alison. Um, I'm pretty sure at the very beginning when it looked like Sam was starting the bar fight, Al was trying to stop him from doing that. But obviously, once he's in the fight, Al needs to, you know, root Sam on so that he actually gets out of it alive. So I actually kind of agree with what Al did there, because he did try and stop Sam from getting in the fight to start with. But yeah, the uh, the part with Mariska is kind of reprehensible. I think maybe Al just thought, oh well, they're they're getting a bit rough in their in their making out and their you know very public display of affection. Uh, but maybe that's just how Al is when he's with a woman. Who knows? But if if Al's choking women out, I, <laughs> there's something wrong with yeah, Al. Yeah, this is a side to Al we don't want to see. No, I th- I think if there is a woman being assaulted, that's when you don't. You don't check them out. <laughs> the other only other defense I might offer for Al in this part, in the fight, do we know what Al knows about how much Oswald is taking over Sam at this point? He knows that he's saying stuff about dropping the soap in the shower and like all these racist things. He's in the bathroom when he says it to him. Yeah, that's true. I I, I just still maybe the, the the gravity of the situation hasn't dawned upon Al fully yet. So when the fight starts, he's naturally going to be on Sam's side because Sam is his you know his butt. I don't think it's wrong. He was he was rooting for him. Like he didn't want him to get hurt or anything. But the fact he's getting in on the fight, like punching other people out and all this mm. stuff, like it just tonally feels very weird. Yeah. Like he's just getting into like a fun bar fight or something. And Sam is like getting really messed up. Yeah. It's not a fun bar fight. Yeah, he's got, like, cuts all over himself, and he's, like, just sweating buckets and, and knocked out on the floor. You know, like, it's <sighs> it just feels like a very weird place for Al to be in emotionally during this scene. Yeah. I didn't notice the sweat any more than the whole rest of the episode. The guy was the guy was drowning <laughs> for an hour and a half. But, oh, my yeah. God. Not since So Help Me God has he been so soaking wet. <laughs> That's just the fan service, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> One of the more uncomfortable aspects of the episode, though, is something that you're bringing up here, Allison. And it was my biggest red flag upon this rewatch is that uh, Don seems to be going out of his way to imply that Oswald is gay. 
and yes. there are very certain things that happen in that in that bar um where he he is sort of saying yeah, he's probably gay yeah is there any historical context to this or this is just him saying it cuz oh he must be gay cuz he's cuz he's a killer or something um the historical context this is where garrison goes off the rails in real history there's the historical context that garrison established in his up mind and there's a, a subtle difference here it seems to me that don is maybe implying that oswald being gay is some sort of contributing factor to the fact that he's you know yeah. insecure or the fact that you know ah, what, whatever makes him a shitty person maybe this this is un- and that that is troubling enough but if you really want sort of like the most troubling thing, a lot of the people that Garrison persecuted um, were in sort of the underground homosexual community in New Orleans in, in the time that he was pursuing his his case. And he more than once described the JFK assassination as a homosexual thrill killing. Oh. Whoa. So a very real historical record will show you that um, Garrison thought that if you were gay, you were guilty. He was a stone-cold homophobe in that respect. That sucks. So it is part and parcel of the history of the Garrison stuff. But the fact that Don put some very blatant implications in this is the most troubling aspect of the episode to me. Sure. Did you guys pick up on that as well? I picked up on it. Yeah, my my immediate go-to was the same response as yours. I've tried to pass this so many times over the years and... The best way that I can comprehend this is that um, it, it goes back to what I was saying about wanting to see Lee as a more well-rounded and sympathetic character, and that he may have been feeling feelings that at that time were considered highly unacceptable, and that could have contributed towards some of his personality traits. My gut feeling is that's not what Don was saying, and like you, Chris, I find it troubling. But that is the that's the the kindest way that I can interpret what happened there. In all my research and all my reading, it was never once intimated that Oswald might have been gay. Okay, I you know what I I'm glad you're mentioning this now that you're saying it. I totally see it. Um, I definitely picked up on the fact when uh, he went to the bar and then they had the the drag queen, the cross-dresser there and all this stuff that I thought maybe there was something maybe like, you know, a journal entry or maybe something that talked about it that like they were putting it in there and alluding to to him being gay or bisexual or whatever and just not doing much with it. But now that you're saying it in that context and and the way that it was um, portrayed by, was his name Garrison? Jim Garrison. Jim Garrison, yeah. The way that that it was placed in his version of events and how it was placed here, I can see what you're saying about um, them trying to imply that this had something to do with what happened, which I think is, um, it is troubling if there is not yeah. even any historical context to this. It's just made up. Well, you got to take what I say with a grain of salt, because even though I'm somewhat versed in this just because of having done the earlier show, I've never read any of Oswald's journals. Um, so I don't know if there is anything that he's ever written that people could latch onto for that. Mm-hmm. But I can only imagine that if there was it would have been played up more dramatically. It would have been one more central thing to his character that they would have explored, at least in some of the media that I engaged in. So I think that this is a total DPB joint, you know? Yeah, and that's upsetting. 
Yeah, because I think like around that time, a closeted gay person, to be repressed like that can cause a lot of anger or confusion or insecurity. So if that was historically something that we knew about him, I could see it being incorporated. But just to put that in there to say, like, maybe this is a factor, um, that's another unfortunate portrayal of gay people in Quantum Leap, which had not that much positive representation. They had running for honor. And then they had like the the twist in uh, Goodnight Dearheart. So that's uh, that's kind of unfortunate. And I don't think it was like purposefully malicious. I just think that it's I they weren't thinking about it. I think it was purposely malicious. I got to be you? honest with you. Yeah, I do. I do. Um I don't um I actually don't think they were trying to portray Oswald as gay at all because it's pretty clear he was having a raging affair with Mariska and he was obviously married with kids. Uh it, it, the way that I interpret well, gay it gay people well, have I, I know, I know <laughs> gay that people but, can be in straight just relationships. Let me finish. Um, uh, the way I interpreted it was Sergeant Lopez and his lackeys were trying to come up with any way to rile Sam up. So they, they came up with the, the gay sort of um, persona that they wanted to tease him with just as something to rile him up. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't think that Don was intending, as you interpreted, which could be right, but I don't think that Don was intending to imply that Oswald was gay or that uh, that was a contributing factor in his mental problems and the fact he became an assassin. To me, it seemed like they were just trying to find anything to rile him up. I mean, you can see it a lot of different ways. Yeah. Well, look, you could interpret it that way. That's fine. It's just not the way I interpreted it. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's why we have a show. That's it. <laughs> Did you guys notice during that scene that Sergeant Lopez was wearing the same shirt that Sam was wearing in Black on White on Fire? I did not, Allison. Oh, Please do elaborate. But yes, <laughs> that's the whole now story. You mention it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have an essay prepared on this particular thing. It's just the shirt he was wearing at the beginning of it. The beige one with no buttons on the front, just open. Yeah. yeah. And another thing very similar to Black on White on Fire as well, Sam's very heavily beaten up at the end of the episode, but he leaps and then he's fully healed again. That's the shirt you wear when you're going to get Scott Bakula bloody, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's part of the reason I like that scene. Oh, the, the violence. If only we had a connection somewhere to Jean-Pierre Dorliac and we could ask him about this. If I don't only know. we knew Jean-Pierre Dorliac's best friend. <laughs> you mean, what, what, ask him if that's the violence shirt? Or what? <laughs> what do you mean ask him? I know it's the same shirt. It's the same shirt. Ask him if there was a deeper meaning to the choice of the shirt. Just... No, I think they had a stock of things from the 60s. <laughs> and that's what they threw in there. No, no, Alison, no. <laughs> All right. So this bar scene, as long as it went on, was a very small part of sort of a much bigger picture that Don was trying to paint. And I'd like to maybe try to sort of not only trace the leap, but trace the conspiracy and sort of figure out how they might have gone hand in hand or how they didn't. Because it seems to me that one of the chief problems that we all seem to have is that, let's just face it, this leap is a freaking mess. Yeah. Like, there's no real discernible through line for it. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes just perfunctory because at some point they decide that Sam has to act like Oswald. So he is just a passenger on a journey that he doesn't control. Like Oswald is driving yeah. for most of the second half of this because they have to be that way because it's the historical record and they can't change it. So 
it was kind of a contortionist act. This is where the seams really start to show. And I think it's because maybe you guys are right. Maybe they said, okay, they want something big for season five. So the obvious leap in is that famous photo of Oswald holding the newspaper and the rifle. And then Don starts to write it and says, well, shit, this is way too late if we're going to trace the conspiracy. So if I can break down the timeline a little bit, the first scene takes place in 63, which is the year of the Kennedy assassination in Dallas, sort of on the eve of Oswald's attempt on General Edwin Walker. And they go back to that. But I I feel like what that scene did first and foremost was not only establish the time in history in the Leap E, but from right off the bat, you see that Oswald is sort of in control because Sam is speaking Russian. He's slapping his wife around. He's he's just not Sam. You know, he's sort of Sam, but it's sort of a, it's a weird mix that, that we've never seen before. And then they don't even get out of that yard and he already simul leaps. Or what What do we even call these types of leaps where he's skittering along Oswald's timeline? Is it a simul leap? Like what? Oh, we- no, they're just leaps. It's it's just, uh, it's like residuals or magnafoozling or, you know, when they're kind of, <laughs> their minds are merging together. I think simul leap was what they called when him and Al switched. Right. Yeah, and I know I was getting it wrong. But the thing is, Hayden, you say that they are just leaps, but they aren't. Because you don't have the full leap effect. It's almost like a lightning effect where he just wakes up at another point in Oswald's timeline. Oh, right. Well, because th- – well, this one was a weird one. It was weird because their minds, their masons and neurons were trying to <laughs> – this This is a whole bunch of hooey. Magic. Just magic. Um, <laughs> their masons and neurons are trying to bleed together. So really, I mean, it isn't a traditional leap. He's just bouncing around in this guy's life, unable to – escape Lee Harvey Oswald. So there really is no point to a lot of it. He's just sort of visiting various points in his life as their their minds are trying to correct themselves. And really, what we're exploring here is the minds merging together and and uh, mm-hmm. talking about the conspiracies and, uh, and what really happened. And the, the leap portion is sort of secondary to all of that. Yes. Yeah. And that's why I say they're just leaps, because ultimately it's not doing anything different than when he does any other leap, except it's into the same person. It's just the fact they don't want to spend the money on the on the special effect to actually make it look like a standard leap. They only have that at the very start and the very finish. I think it would also take up too much time if they took those, what, 10 or so seconds to do the leap effect to go from one stage yeah, to the next. Yeah, just constantly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm but I'm just going to say that I disagree with you there. I understand the logic and that makes perfect sense, Hayden. But I'm going by what I'm seeing on screen. And to me, the leap into the photo and the leap out of the depository and into Clint Hill in the back of the limo are like leaps, like like when you think of a leap. I think what was happening skittering along Oswald's timeline was a different sort of phenomenon. It was sort of leap, but not a leap. This is where like the writer in me would explore this. Yes. So that's why I, I find this so striking because it really is quite different than anything we've ever seen. Even think about like Double Identity, um, the only other episode where he leaps twice. It's not that different to anything we've seen because from Sam's point of view, we've seen what a leap is like for him in Genesis and it is an instant switch from one to the next. No, no, no. But usually he leaps from person to person, not within different points in that person's lifetime. And in this, whatever it is he's doing, he's retaining all of his memories in as far as when he's able to connect with Al about what's happened previously on the leap. Yeah. 
that's true. Okay, you've got a good point there, because you would think that he'd Swiss cheese a little, wouldn't you? This feels like it's a single leap where he is unstuck in time. Yeah. And he's, yeah. yeah, like you said, skittering, he's kind of sliding around Oswald's life like he can't get a lock onto a particular time and place. But it's it's one or maybe two wrongs to put right, and it's it's one leapy, and it's one overarching story. Well, that begs the question, like, what was he there to do when he leaped into that famous photo before their minds started trying to fix themselves, and then he was bouncing around? Was there a, a purpose? Well, it's interesting you say that, Alison, because the part about that bit with that particular leap that gets me is when he's looking down the barrel of the gun at someone. I have no idea who he's actually looking at and about to shoot. And then he leaps or partially leaps, whatever it is you want to call it, mock leaps to Japan. I don't understand the significance of that part either. Well, he's not actually pointing it at anyone. Yeah, he's seeing the stuff from Dallas. And I don't know if that's supposed to be stuff from Oswald imagining what he's going to do, or maybe Sam's just remembering things from his memory, merging together. It's all very strange. I wish they'd done a little more of that, to be honest. I found that very interesting, because that wasn't really happening there. It was just the times merging together. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that was obviously Hayden of you, who he saw through this. That's supposed to be the back of Kennedy's head, as Oswald saw it from the book Depository. I think that was just another way for the episode to establish, hey, he's Lee Harvey Oswald. And here are all of the hallmarks of everything that you've seen in popular media that is a shorthand for that. And the back of Kennedy's head in a rifle scope is maybe the third most iconic sort of image that gets ginned up whenever anybody does something regarding the Kennedy assassination. I can't tell you how many books have that as as like a cover. Okay. Yeah. Fictional and non-fictional. So again, that that's just a visual shorthand. And that's why I think Don sort of wrote himself into a corner and then had to go because I say that he's skittering along Oswald's life haphazardly, but he's really not because when he leaves 1963, he goes back to 1957. And from that point on, every subsequent leap or leap at or whatever we're calling them is linear. He goes from 57 to 59 to 63. Mm. So it's not like he's going back and forth. He's just skittering toward the inevitable. That's why I think that this entire, I mean, I, I, I know what you're saying about it seeming like a different sort of leaping phenomenon, but yeah, you, you probably are right that it's like one big self-contained leap. He's just got to go through different points in Oswald's life in order to achieve the ultimate goal, which is A, to unpack the assassination conspiracy and B, to save Jackie Kennedy. So yeah, as, and that's you are right. That's why it would be in a linear fashion. Um, can I just get back to something you were saying about keeping track of the conspiracy through the leaps? Yeah, I have um, I have sort of a rundown here. If you guys want to get into that more or not, it's up to you. But go ahead, Hayden. Well, I was just going to say the leap in Japan was also quite important for another reason because that did establish that he wasn't approached by someone from the KGB. Um, as they thought he probably would have been at the time. Oh, for sure. So that, that's another reason why that was also important. Oh, yeah. And I think that that is the, the whole reason that they set it there. And a lot of this leap is um, Al setting up conspiracy straw men for Sam or just the story to knock down. So we go from Texas in 63 
to Japan in 57. And that's where Al starts saying, oh, you're here to meet maybe a KGB agent. And maybe it's Mariska. Maybe she's a Russian spy. And Sam himself says, Al, if you were in the KGB, would you hire anyone as conspicuous as Mariska to be your agent? Well, maybe that's what they're counting on. But it was also to establish the fact that he knew about the U-2 and sort of Oswald's whole association with race car. And as I said before, Al is bringing up every organization under the sun, the CIA, the FBI, the military, the Secret Service, the mafia, defense contractors. I think that a lot of the reason that Don stuck to more of um, like the CIA angle, like like the big nameless, faceless organization angle of the conspiracy theories of it being an inside job is because it was a good way to streamline um, a lot of um, the conspiracies into a shorthand. If you look at what was actually on screen in JFK – they get into the minutia of all of the conspiracy stuff that stemmed out of New Orleans, where Garrison was seriously convinced that there was government operations going on that um, Oswald was involved in that, that went all the way to the highest levels of the government, right up to the vice president. And everybody had a hand in murdering JFK. Whereas in this, Al could posit that kind of stuff as an abstract but the fact that Sam is in a bar by himself and is not being approached by a KGB agent, well, then Al says, well, then maybe he's good here to meet a CIA contact. But he's not being approached by the CIA either. There's like nobody. There is nobody here that is going to lead you to a broader truth. It's just Oswald wanting to go to Russia because he is a fervent communist and he really believes that he can, I guess, have a better life there. So he's using Mariska to learn Russian and to go with her, right? Yeah. I mean, you could use a leap to try and yeah. figure out all this conspiracy stuff. Or Al could just go in with a gun <laughs> and go, <laughs> are you working alone? Who are you working right. with? Tell me what the truth is. I don't believe in killing someone just because I disagree with their politics. I, I, I want a lawyer. I'm deaf. I'm deaf! You're gonna be dead in a minute if you don't tell me the truth. Okay, okay, don't hurt me. Oh, I love that bit. I do love that scene as well. That is the most unhinged we ever see Al. I think it's great, but also, like, it it does away with, like, uh, whatever. We're spending all this time... Ugh, fine, I'm just taking a gun. <laughs> tell me the truth! But I have to say, though, I mean, this brought up a point that I never thought of before. At any given time, which Oswald is he speaking to? Yeah, he could be holding a gun to an Oswald from from fifty seven that doesn't know what Oswald in sixty three would have known. Do you see what I'm saying? He seems to be the same Oswald through the whole thing. That confused me too. Right. So I mean, you got to think if Sam is in different parts of Oswald's life, you're going to get a different version of Oswald every time you walk into that waiting room. Yeah, it makes me wonder if uh, maybe when Oswald, the different Oswalds, leap into the waiting room, you know, there, there's enough of a Swiss cheesing there so that it seems like it's a continuous time frame, and it's just like he's been there from the very first leap until the very end. Maybe that's the way we can explain, you know, why it seems like they're just continuing the same conversation when, in reality, for Oswald, they're, they're years apart. Maybe this ties into the fact that the two characters are, are starting to merge in that maybe it is just the one Oswald that leaps in at the start, and this is meant to be a 1963-era leap, and then Sam starts getting yanked around Oswald's life. But to, to Oswald, this is just 
One Leap from 1963, and then Sam's going and starting kind of half leaping into his life, but still being irritable and tetchy and sweaty. Um, and bit, the leaps aren't really completing, so actually we just see... But what's happening to the other Oswalds? <laughs> well, well, nothing, because they're kind of just still there, merged in with Sam. They're both fighting for control. So that Sam's not kicked younger Lee out of, of the the space and time that they they have physically merged you're saying that that's one way of looking at it i don't think that necessarily hangs together it goes against the quantum exclusion principle well yes <laughs> yeah yeah the poly exclusion principle the two masons and neurons yeah two souls can't take on the same space yeah, yeah two souls can't <laughs> it's all it's magic. all magic it's all magic all this stuff and then when sam's like you can't leap isolated masons and neurons without drawing other neural energy with it yeah it's just a whole bunch of gobbledygook nonsense yeah but it does explain why oswald has so much more of a hold on sam after that point though because they have literally sent more oswald into it sure i don't mind it from a story point of view it's just it's just nonsense though (laughs) (laughs) i love the fact that we got more of the gobbledygook allison that's one of my favorite parts of the episode because lore you know i love the lore Chris loves him some lore. <laughs> no, I did. I did like it that they did repeat the same thing that they did last time. They just state something as if it's always been a fact instead yeah. of just introducing it into into things. They could have said like, "Oh, the reason Sam is like experiencing more residuals in season five is because the longer he leaps, the more he merges with people." Something like that. Well, didn't they state it was because Oswald was so mentally unstable? That's why so many of his neurons stayed when Oswald leapt out. Didn't they say that? I don't recall that. No, well, what I'm talking about here is when uh, when Sam says, like, hey, you know how there's always a residual of someone left behind during a leap? You know, like, their knowledge or personality or maybe part of their soul. And then I was like, yes, this has always been a thing. It's like, you guys have never stated that. There's been, like, instances where, you know... Well, the shock theater. That, well, they don't say that there's always pieces of them left behind, do they? They don't say that. Well, how could there not be if he's taking on all their personas in shock theater, though? Well, yeah, that clearly happened in shock theatre, but it's said as if this is just always the case. Yeah, there's definitely, like, going back to, like, season one, you can see, like, acting choices that support the theory that he's always had these residuals, they just never acknowledged it as a thing. But the way that they're saying it, like, this is always a thing, and this is, we've, we know that, like, every time there's always a piece of someone left behind. That's never been anything they've talked about. Mm. You know, it's funny, Allison, because I can't help but think of the show now as a whole, and that has always, in my mind, at this point, been part and parcel of sort of the premise of the show. And is this the first time that they actually state this explicitly? And is it just for the convenience of this plot? Well, they, um, they've they had him take on some things, like, you know, shock theater, he was taking on personality traits and things that he couldn't possibly know about these people unless he was making it up or he had- a- Dreams as well, I think. You're right, you're right. Dreams also was, yeah, I think Dreams was, like, the most prominent, like, explicit personality uh, uh, taking that on because they had, like- um you know, eight and a half months, that was more of a physical thing. So, like, um, they've certainly had instances where you could be like, okay, he is clearly taking on some traits of these people without actually stating that this is something that is happening. 
But them stating this here, like it's it's always been a thing, is just um, well, they did cite the leap back pretty heavily on this one about the time when they swapped places. Well, it's true. Yeah, they they did get pieces of each other. You're right. So they they did sort of lean heavily on what happened in that episode to justify what was happening in this episode. I guess because one, Don wrote both, and two, it's the most blatant example to to history. And both of them remember it. Yeah, this and both time. remember it this time. It's like they just switch who's going to remember it when, but this time they both remember it. Well, to me, it just seems like you don't have to explicitly state something so that people know it happens. I mean, we have seen this go on throughout a lot of it. So Yeah, but they just didn't really talk about it that much. That's why it seemed weird to me. Yeah. Because, like, I do, I love stuff with residuals. I find that very fascinating. I just think it was clunky to just state it like that. Yeah, it, it's just, it's not introduced very cleanly. Um, you know, the fact that we're, we're able to pull out a handful of very clear examples from the first four seasons just goes to show that this this is not something that happens very clearly every week. Talk about it or not, it's not something that we've seen happen to this extent, except in a couple of exceptions. But the way they put it, it's, this, this always yeah, happens. he says that this always happens, whereas it, it seemed like, yeah, that this was something that yeah. occasionally would occur. Well, maybe it's just this time he's having a lot more trouble controlling it. Usually with someone who's far more mentally, you know, stable, um, he's able to stay in control a lot more and then it doesn't affect him as much. But maybe he always notices that little bit of the person there, but they don't really affect him like Oswald has been. That's a good take. Yeah. I've thought that Scott Bakula has always played it that way. And like in my headcanon, it has always been that way. Like you could see in episodes where they don't, stated that there seems to be something like that going on. Like in Jimmy, he seems to be taking on traits of Jimmy. So uh, I do believe that it's that it's been there. I like that part of the lore. I just wish that they hadn't stated it clunkily like that. Clunkily like my grandmother's platter. <laughs> my grandmother's platter. My gra- <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't do your baby voice, Allison. Dreams with the dreams. <laughs> No, we've told her not to do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, while we're on the subject of the law, did you notice that when Sam properly leaps out of Oswald into the Secret Service guy? Clint Hill. Yeah. Al actually remains where he is and um, he's able to still witness what's happened. So it kind of contradicts something that he says a bit later that he doesn't know what it looks like when Sam leaps because he was there when one happened and yeah. um, it looks like no time passes in between. So They were very loosey-goosey on that, though. He was too busy flailing his hands through, yeah, through Oswald. <laughs> well, I think we do have a reason for it. It's because uh, you could argue that this particular leap didn't actually travel Sam through time. It's more that he just went from one person to another in the same time. So if he's not traveling in time, then maybe no time will actually pass between. And maybe that's the reason, too, why Al is actually able to keep the connection, because he did leap so close. Probably. Yeah, well, no no time did shift there. He leaped in at the exact same time. Right, and I'd never thought about that, but you'd think Al would have blinked out at least momentarily for the time it took. The leap effect to, to resolve, but yeah. it's funny because we, we think about um, Al, and I think this comes from Mirror Image, 
when Sam says, what do I look like when I leap? And Alice says, I don't know. I go back into the waiting room when you leap. And that contradicts so much of what yeah. we've seen in the series because Al has seen Sam leap. And even in Good Morning Peoria, yes. he gets under the antennas or whatever. And he says, right, look, right. it looks like I'm leaping. Yeah, there, there's more evidence that he... That he does know. Yeah, Mirror Image is the outlier in that. But we'll get to that. Well, it could just be as soon as Sam does you know, start the leaping process, that's when the connection actually drops. And maybe that is an explanation of why the image just becomes the way the, oh, well, not waiting room, the imaging chamber again for him. Maybe that actually is when it drops. But you are right that Good Morning Peoria is an obvious inconsistency, but it is also consistent in the fact that um, he says in Genesis that it does take time in between the leaps because they've been partying for a week. So yeah, yeah. speaking of uh, the project... Did you notice the calculator handling made another appearance? Yeah, Gushy's got it now. We didn't even talk about Gushy being in the episode, the Gushman. Yeah, that was where I was going next. So we're, we're all back at the project. I mean, I love, again, much more lore. And we get Dennis Wolfberg back as Gushy, which is great. And he makes a few more appearances in season five, which to me is one of the one of the strengths of season five. Great to see more stuff about just what the project is like. Right? And we got one new set, did we not? We got that yeah. that corridor, corridor set. Yeah, yeah, which the hallway? It's still a new set. Yeah. <laughs> we still saw more back at the project. <laughs> the one hallway. <laughs> it seems to be the corridor that goes between the imaging chamber and the waiting room, I think. I thought it was the corridor that maybe goes between the imaging chamber and the control room. Well, he's on the way to the waiting room, though, isn't he? It goes from the waiting room to the control room. Yeah. It would seem to me that the waiting room and the imaging chamber have to be very close together because we've got some leaps. Um, Nowhere to Run's a good example where Al goes to check on the person in the waiting room and then he immediately rushes to yeah. see Sam to tell him what's going on. So they, the two can't be very far apart. Because if he's able to go and, you know, see that the guy has no legs and, and then rush to see Sam and say, don't get up, you know, that, that could only take the space of a couple of minutes. So the two rooms would have to be very, very close together. All right. And I, I know there's fan art out there with the, with the layout of Project Quantum Leap. So please send it our way. You listeners, you loyal leapers out there. Somebody is, has to have had figured this out. Isn't there something about it in the um, the the Quantum Leap book? There's sketches in there of different parts of the project and different things like magna links yeah, and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. That's in there, isn't it? I do think the, the layout's in there. Okay, so here I was uh, imploring our listeners and I had my super fan in front of me the whole time. Had I only known else. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like uh, like an octagon or some sort of like, you know, circle where it's got all of these different offshoots and things like that, including the imaging chamber and the waiting room and stuff like that, if, if my memory uh, is correct. It seems to make sense. So where does the hallway fit in? We have to figure out where that hallway fits in. It's going to the vending machine. That's what the hallway <laughs> <laughs> You know, while we're on the subject of the project, I really think they missed another great opportunity. Because they've really got a character that Sam's left into who's completely nuts. Why aren't they getting a scene with Dr. Beaks? Dr. Beaks needs to examine him. Dr. Beaks got ripped off. She sure did. Dr. Beaks got ripped off. She should have had yep. her lines. She should have had more scenes. Candy Ann Brown got, she got ripped off. Yeah, I can think of other examples too where they really needed her in there. Um, Return of the Evil Leaper is another good one. Yeah, why is it always Al that's in the uh, the waiting room and not Doctor Beaks? 
And the, the novels do a much better job of that. Yeah, and I mean, this kid really needed some psychological help. Why don't they have the actual psychiatrist in there therapizing him? It doesn't make sense. So, yeah, again, they've missed out on another great opportunity. And that's one thing I really love about the novels. They say yeah. you have to include Dr. Beaks in these. In fact, I think it was when I spoke to John Peel, um, he said he got notes back about independence and they said it's great, but you've got to put Dr. Beaks in it. And so, yeah, that's why Dr. Beaks is in it. Dr. Beaks got to actually say lines and do things in the books. That was nice. Yeah. <laughs> I had Dr. Beaks in my book. It was almost like a Star Trek Next Generation briefing room scene. Very briefly on the topic of the um, the layout, uh, the novel Angels Unaware confirms that uh, central control is on the same level as the waiting room. And we know that control and the imaging chamber are obviously linked. So so they have to be, yeah, you go up one ramp, you're in the imaging chamber, you go up the next ramp, you're in the waiting room. And that's also borne out in um, another season five episode where we get to see yeah. them walking through the project. I don't want to spoil that episode, but I know we're talking a lot about such great stuff that we got to see as fans back at the project. I mean, that to me is one of the strengths of this episode and uh, that we're geeking out about it is the way, you know, I've never been able to discuss this aspect of the episode because I've always been so steeped in all the JFK stuff. So it's just great to be a freaking leaper for a change and say, oh, they're leaping individual <laughs> neurons and mesons and oh, look, there's a corridor we hadn't seen before and Cushy's in it. So <laughs> it makes me very happy. And Bell Rock. And the calculator handling. Gushy and Al can squint one eye at each other <laughs> as they talk about conspiracies. Oh, it's but I, so thank you guys for that. It makes me a happy nerd. A happy leaper. Are you liking the episode more and more now that we're talking about the project itself? Right. I mean, that's the stuff that I can really cling to is like a life raft in this otherwise dire sort of experiment that uh, did wind up where we always knew it would wind up, where all of these properties wind up in the Texas School Book Depository in 1963, uh, that fateful day. We went from 63 to 57 in Japan. Then we went to 59, so Don could have his cameo mm -hmm. in California. <laughs> then we go to Moscow, where um, here's one of the scenes that I know a lot of fans cling to. And uh, Hayden, you even mentioned it. We call it the diary paradox. Yes. So you had mentioned that you have a theory about – let me just set it up for people who don't maybe know what we're talking about. But there's one scene where Al is reading Oswald's diary to Sam – and he's telling Sam that he has to kill himself. It's, you have to commit suicide. My fondest, F-O-N-D-I-S, uh, dreams are shattered because of a petty official, because of bad planning. Uh, I have planned so much. 7 p.m., I decide to end it, slash wrist, R-I-S-T. And he's reading it as if Oswald was writing it in real time. So if he's reading it to Sam and Sam is not writing the diary, where did the diary come from? So what is your theory, Hayden? Okay, well, first of all, any theory is not going to be perfect. You're always going to be able to pick holes in it. But um, from having a read of what Matt wrote in Behind the Mirror Image, because Matt's done all the research, um, there's actually quite a lot of inconsistencies with what Al reads to Sam and what is actually in the diary. A lot of different spelling mistakes, some different phrasing, that sort of thing. So what it makes me think is they've done that purposely so that Al's reading what Oswald wrote in the original timeline, but then when Sam bounces out and Oswald bounces back, 
Oswald seems to have these massive ideas of grandeur. So I think even if he wrote it down a little bit later, he would still do it to like to state what he was thinking at the time. But it would make sense then that if he's writing it down a bit later, that there would be some differences in it. Okay. So it seems to me that he's written the diary after being bounced back and after the suicide attempt itself. Hmm. That makes sense. Sure. I could go with that. Okay. Well, mystery solved. That scene is spooky, by the way. The fact that uh, this is one of the darkest things I think they've had Al do is ask Sam to attempt suicide. Attempt suicide. Attempt. 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 And then, like, ah, oh, I love that bit, though. I love he has to push Sam into doing this, and he doesn't want to do it. And then at the very last second, Al turns away because he just can't watch. Ah, oh, so good. And it's such a pivotal scene narratively. As well, because up until this point, you have Sam still having some agency, even though it conveniently slips in and out uh, according to what Oswald needs to do historically, like give up information about the U-2, information that the Russians already had anyway. They didn't. He didn't tell them anything. They didn't even say in the episode. But history has proven out that he did not give them anything that they didn't already have. I mean, he even failed at being a traitor. Yeah. <laughs> so this is where the leap takes a weird turn because this is where they say. I'm just thinking though, what if I prematurely exited that first leap into Oswald? Or the one where Marina took your picture? Yeah. What if I leaped out before I had a chance to put right what once went wrong? Well, why would you leap before you had a chance? Well, if I knew that. I know how to get off this leaping yo-yo so that I could do whatever it was I was supposed to do in the first place. It would just stop, stop the assassination. This. Right, well, let's hope that's it. Sam Ziggy says, you're on the right track. It's just going to take time to test your hypothesis, but you should continue and play this scenario out. Oh, look, I got a big choice. Oh, oh, wait, I didn't finish, but you got to play it out just the way Oswald did. No changing history. Okay, so tell me what I'm supposed to do. So in order to... Get back on track. You have to live life as Oswald would have lived it without changing history. That's our theory. I don't know where they came up with that Fakakta theory. And what did <laughs> Sam do or not do in 63 if he never got out of that freaking backyard? I don't understand that either. Oh, I can help you with that. But this is where Oswald takes over completely. When he goes to slit his wrists, um, from that point on, Sam is gone. It's all Oswald because we go to the assassination attempt on Walker. Um, Oswald did come that close. It was only sheer chance that Walker bent over when Oswald took the shot. Otherwise, he would have shot him right in the head. I mean, the shot was dead on. It was perfect. And Sam even says, I, I, it was an easy shot. How could I have missed? How could I miss? So that was all true to history. And at that point, you know, Al is having a very, very difficult time getting through to Sam. And it only gets worse from that point on because then we go to New Orleans and the hands off Cuba. And I think that, again, that seems like a very incongruous scene to throw in. But I think that Belisario had to make a nod to Oswald's time in New Orleans because that's where every conspiracy theory stems from. And um, I think he just wanted to show that, yes, Oswald was there historically, but all he did was was a minor functionary in this fringe organization. Bit of flirting. Yeah, and, and a bit of flirting and no CIA agents anywhere, you know, no, no conspiracy, no, no, he wasn't embroiled in anything. <laughs> Don't you think it's funny that Lee Harvey Oswald hates fascists, but he supports Fidel Castro? yes. Um, I think since he couldn't get to communist Russia, I guess communist Cuba was the next best thing. 
Yeah, it wasn't fascism he was against, it was communism that he was for. Yeah. And they should have really made that distinction. But again, it just shows you that he was a bit malleable in his views and very impressionable. That's exactly how I took it, is, yeah, very easily led. Can we just go back to what you were saying about the very initial leap where they take the photo? Now, you are right, they came up with this idea which didn't lead anywhere about him leaping prematurely, but I don't think he actually did leap prematurely. The reason that he was there was because they had to prove that the photo wasn't a fake. We already had proof that the photo wasn't a fake. There are two more photos on that roll set in the same backyard with Oswald in different poses with the gun. Yeah, but the viewers probably wouldn't know that, is what I'm saying. I'm just saying if they were keeping track of the conspiracy theories as they go, then they do need to tick off, photo's not a fake. So that's why that first scene was necessary. No, I understand why the scene was necessary. I'm just wondering what he was supposed to do there before he leaped prematurely, according to their theory anyway, that he leaped prematurely. And I'm sorry if I sound jaded about that photo, because it just, it irks me. When people say that photo is a fake and it's it's just it's one of the prime examples of conspiracy theorists cherry picking what they want to cherry pick out of the record to support their bullshit theories. So that's yeah, if, if I seemed like I had an edge on that, it's because I do. <laughs> but if there is an element that this leap is somewhat there, even within the fiction, uh, for the project to be able to observe exactly what happened and remove any shred of doubt as to what's bullshit and what's not, then, yeah, like you say, there are still people out there that believe that the photo is a fake. So no matter what evidence you have, Chris, and it's perfectly viable evidence, nothing's quite the same as actually having, within the fiction, a leaper arrive there and take part in that. It's still I'm with Hayden in that it's still an important leap to have had within the fiction to establish that as well as for the audience to say oh hey all right okay we're we're establishing this crazy whacked out idea that that photo was real fine okay now i love that scene you guys are the greatest (laughs) (laughs) you're gonna love this episode as much as i do by the end of this podcast chris i guess maybe um but uh from new orleans uh we're we're in 63 now all of this happened in the same year the walker assassination attempt the stuff in New Orleans with the hands off Cuba. And then we go to 11, 1121. I guess it was the day before they were talking about an announcement of Kennedy getting there. And at that point, Sam is completely Oswald. He's totally Oswald. He is sinisterly drinking tea. That's how you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's the only way to do it, Allison. Only way to do it. Mm-hmm. He's, got that, he's got that I smelled something bad look on his face. And he's like, hmm, I'm planning a murder. At least he didn't have his legs crossed. I, I was just going to say, at least he's drinking tea sinisterly and not homosexually. <laughs> Although if that's the if that's what they were trying to get across, they would have him drink tea, wouldn't they? It would be just like running for honour. Absolutely. I drink a lot of tea, so I, I'm often reminded that Al thinks that tea drinkers are all gay. It was a big gay boat festival with the Boston Tea Party. <laughs> yeah. And now we know that Lee is also a tea drinker. There we go. Well, he was he was drinking tea in Russia, too. When he was giving up the U2 secrets. The Russians, they're all gay as well. <laughs> While we're talking about Russia, uh, I did want to say that the monologue that that Russian guy gives, what is the actor you did the interview with? Ilya Bashkin. Yeah. Was very, very good. The acting was so good. Our native lands are like that. No matter how abusive, how oppressive, how unjust their treatment, we have this patriotic, almost biological need to love them. 
It is only when we attain our political maturity we realize that no matter how traitorous our actions may seem in our native country, the betrayal is theirs. It's not ours. Just really great job by him. He's an amazing character actor, and you've seen this guy in a ton of stuff. He was in Moscow on the Hudson. He was in 2010, the year we made contact. He was in an Air Force One that had Dean Stockwell in it. Oh, really? He was also playing a Russian guy. Yeah, just a wonderful man. Um, we're going to give you a very short version of a very long interview. So again, scroll back on the feed and you can hear the rest of it. Cool. Yeah, Ilya Bashkin. Stand up, dude. Stand up, dude. But aside from all the tea drinking, sinister or not, traitorous or not, we wind up the next day with what we already talked about. Sam taking the ring off, putting it in the teacup, grabbing the rifle out of uh, the shed at Ruth Payne's house and uh, driving to work, seeing it was curtain rods, all of that true to history. And then he's building the sniper's nest on the sixth floor of the book depository. I've seen the sniper's nest. On TV, it always looks cavernous. No matter who's producing this, it always seems to be like a nice big space. It really was like a rat's nest. There was so little space between the boxes and the windows that I was surprised that Oswald could even like get positioned to get the shot. That's how small that space is in real life. But you can't fit camera crews in there. Exactly. That's that's the problem. And it's all glassed off. So it's not like you can stand where he did and see what he did. But I'm just bragging rights here. <laughs> um, when we went to Dallas, we went to a book event for uh, the Secret Service agent, Clint Hill. And that's the Secret Service agent that Sam leaps into when he finally snaps out of it. Oh. That event took place on the seventh floor of the Texas School Book Depository. And we were able to look out the window, just one floor removed, and see the exact view that Oswald would have seen, or as close as you can get now, unless you go behind that glass. So it's really a trippy experience because it's another thing where if you watch enough of this stuff, you've seen that view up Elm and that view down in towards the overpass yeah. a million times. And to see it from the exact same vantage point where I'm sure they shoot all this stuff, either from the roof or from the seventh floor, is just, it, it's a mindful. But anyway, let's talk about that scene. Because at that point, Sam is completely gone. And this is where Al lays it out, almost like to the point where he's hitting you over the head with, there's no conspiracy. It's just like a very blunt statement of Oswald acted alone. No conspiracy? No. And it's just this complete 180 that Al does. And Sam also tells him, through Oswald, I'm acting alone. Sam, there is no conspiracy. I'm acting alone. And you've got to stop me. Which seems a little strange to me, too, if that's residuals or just his brain transferring over or whatever. Here's the contradiction I saw in that scene. Sam is so totally Oswald that, like, Al can't even get through to him at this point. Mm -hmm. Yet Al is in the waiting room also talking to Oswald. And then Sam just sort of bleeds through right at that very last second. So it's like, where is Sam in all of this? Well, Sam does say that Sam is there. Like, he knows that he's there, but... It's kind of like the leap he is next to him at the same time and leads him along. So it actually is Sam in the book depository and doing the acts. It's just kind of that the the leap he is next to him and egging him on, essentially. Yeah, the reason he's more he's more uh, Lee Harvey Oswald than Lee Harvey Oswald is Sam is because of that leap attempt when they put him in the accelerator chamber, which, by the way, 
They let Lee Harvey Oswald walk around the project to put him in the accelerator? What the what the hell is that all about? Well, you didn't see the circumstances under which he was marched into the chamber. I mean, he could have had a black sack over his head and been handcuffed. Oh, they, they like, blindfolded us? Yeah, yeah exactly. Cool. <laughs> That's just more of the proletariat being... <laughs> just play right into his paranoia. What the hell? Yeah. Um, no consequences to that in history whatsoever. No. But yeah, they uh, they tried to leap his mind or parts of Sam's mind back to him, and they put more of him in Sam, so that's why he's so out of it. But I do wish that they had more of Sam and Oswald. I, th- I think that's interesting that the residuals went the other way in this case. It's interesting that mind merging is a two-way street, because this is where we definitely get the proof that not only does Sam gain some memories and some control over what the P had, but the leap he gets a bit of sam in a future episode um revenge of the evil leaper we see um a, a waiting room scene and the the woman there that alia had leapt into is kind of catatonic she's stressed out and can't stop crying and um it, it makes me think that uh, she's probably reliving a lot of what alia went through through her leaps as well and alia's would have been much much um uh, let's just say a lot more stressful for anyone to have to deal with. So could be. It's interesting. I never thought about that one that way, but interesting headcanon. Oh, I've got a, I've got uh, something interesting for you as well. Um, I'm spewing because I lost a trivia competition because of this. All right, <laughs> but the question was, who was the first person murdered on live television? Well, for obvious reasons, I picked JFK, and I was so, so close, but it's not JFK because even though his murder was televised, it was from the homemade footage and it was shown later. Later, yeah. Yeah. No, the first person murdered on live TV was Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh. Yeah, of course. Wow, that's an amazing little factoid. I had no idea, but it makes sense. It certainly does make sense. And something else interesting that I was thinking about was you've interviewed Natasha Pavlovich and... It's thought-provoking that Marina actually doesn't do all that much in the episode, even though she's so heavily featured. I think all she does is take the photo and take some abuse, and then she tells Sam off for trying to shoot the senator, and then she talks about the fact that Jackie Kennedy is wearing some flower colour. And that's pretty much all that she does in the episode. And I found that quite astonishing considering how overwhelmingly cooperative she was and the fact that her testimony made up a lot of the historical um, references that are actually given in the episode. She does fight with him a lot and uh, point out how wrong the things he's doing are. I mean, they don't talk about the stuff that happens afterward, obviously, but uh, she does give him resistance. And it's true in the moment the dramatization, especially in in the wake of the assassination attempt on Walker, that's where Natasha got to do the most in the episode because she's just completely terrified. No, it just surprised me that she didn't feature more heavily. So I am very much looking forward to hearing what she had to say with your interview. So hopefully we get into that soon. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we will. We will. It'll be coming up. So no fears there. Hayden, I think the problem that you have there is that when you're telling this, this sprawling story and trying to put it into such a broad historical context, especially in the terms of a leap, what do we usually see a leap? I mean, the longest we've seen is maybe Temptation Eyes, which has been a month where Sam does nothing but bang anyway. (laughs) I think that Don had to make some very specific choices, and you can't 
write an Oswald episode without Marina because she was there, especially as Oswald was getting more and more crazy. So you have to put her in, but at the same time, it still has to take a backseat to the narrative thrust. And if you can put in one or two scenes where she's doing something pivotal, like taking that photo or adding really good drama like she was after the Walker assassination attempt, because that gave Scott someone to play off of as well in a way that was very out of character. So you're right. Maybe they didn't use her as much as they could have, but I think they used her really well for what they were able to get into this episode that was already very jam-packed with a lot of other stuff. So Marina was just one part of this bigger story. And like I said earlier, we always knew where it was going to wind up on that sixth floor in the sniper's nest. And this is where the episode really, I don't know, depending on how caught up you are in it, where you're just like, give me a break or, oh my God, this is riveting. What's going to happen? In my mind, when I first watched this, there was never a chance that Sam was going to be the one taking the shot. <sighs> knowing how these things play out, knowing that we were going to wind up there anyway, did you guys feel a sense of urgency, feel like like tense? How, how did this work for you dramatically? Did you feel any kind of heightened tension? Were you like, oh my God, what's going to happen at any point during that? Or did you? was it always a foregone conclusion to you that he would leap out before before the assassination took place? No, I wouldn't say that um, I thought that it was certain he was going to leap out. I would... Uh, the way that I reconciled this in my mind was that it wasn't really Sam and doing the acting there anyway. Like, it, it was Oswald taking over. So even if Sam had been the one to pull the trigger, they would have reconciled the fact that he wasn't really himself at the time. So, um, no, I, I didn't think that it was a given that he was going to leap away. I'm glad that he did, but I didn't think it was a given. I think if they, like, as much as any episode you know sam's not gonna die or you know he's gonna get out before like in the, the last minute uh but you also know like the show's not gonna have the main character retroactively assassinate the president of the united states but i did appreciate that they you know i like as from a character standpoint like it was very close like sam came yeah. to like uh assassinating someone and how distraught he is over this whole situation the fact he wasn't able to save him and when he's talking to al in the the hospital you can see like tears rolling down his face thanks if you hadn't reached me it wouldn't have been you pulling that trigger sam not really and then when i I, I had a chance to save him. I leaked. Why, Al? Why? Yeah, it was a really good scene. I'm kind of glad they cut away when they did because I would have problems if it was him taking the shot, even if even if it was the first shot that missed. I, I, it, I, it, it again falls into that taste category. I mean, the whole thing that I question the taste of, of involving Sam at all in this, but mm. if they had had him take a shot or the shot, like it, it would have crossed a line. I agree there. Now, speaking of crossing a line, I mean, here's where we cross the major line of this episode. And uh, I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. This episode proves that it's Sam Beckett's universe, and we're just living in it. Ziggy thinks you were here to save her. Your Swiss cheese mind probably doesn't remember, but the first time, Oswald killed Jackie, too. For the first time ever, we see a change that affects our history directly. Well, it's not, 
but I can see why you would say that. The first time is actually um, how the test was won when he teaches Buddy Holly the lyrics to Peggy Sue. But those are just bullshit kisses with history. Actually, the first time is in Starcrossed when he uh, and he he's the one that gets them to call the cops in in the Watergate. He unveils the whole thing. I guess. Good point. Yeah, but it, look, the rubber band history has always existed. It's just the most prevalent in this one. I don't have a problem with the with these little kisses with history or like involving historical events in what's happening because that's what you do with a period piece it's just when you get into this direct involvement where you have to be very careful i honestly i don't know how i felt about sort of the big jackie reveal at the end of this one i figured that eh, you know when it ended the first time it's as good an ending as any if you're going to have sam start playing with history well, then here's the big shift that the committee's been calling for ever since Honeymoon Express with the U2. Coincidentally, they wanted him to, to stop the U2 incident, um, which plays very heavily into this episode. Um, to this day, I think I remain ambivalent about it. And I think, and if you guys don't mind, I'll, I'll start giving sort of my wrap up. And I think the reason I'm ambivalent about this is um, I like to ask at the end, like final observations, do you think that this is good quantum leap? And as good a piece of television as this is, as, as great as the performances are, especially by Scott, and I think as necessary as the message that Don is trying to put forth, uh, how Oswald was a lone gunman, and I agree with that. I just don't think this is a very good episode of Quantum Leap on Quantum Leap terms. I think that the whole leap aspect of this episode is just a mess. It doesn't really hang together. And in the end, it doesn't really matter. Allison, you said it best at the top of the show. This just being a biopic about Oswald with some quantum leap stuff thrown in. So I think under those terms, this episode fails. And that's why the resolution to the leap that Jackie is still alive, thanks to Sam, just doesn't really resonate with me in any way. Because there was never any stakes for the leap anyway except for the fact that he might shoot JFK. That being said, I appreciate this episode more than I ever have. I would highly recommend anybody who wants to watch it to watch it because it is a very well-produced, very good piece of television, very cinematic. It's probably the biggest episode that Quantum Leap ever did. And they did it very well on its own terms. But as a leaper, it still leaves me wanting more. So anyway, those are my thoughts. Allison, what, what are your final observations about Lee Harvey Oswald? Yeah, I think I, I agree uh, with what you were saying. It's not really a Quantum Leap episode or very much of one to me. What maybe 5-10% is Quantum Leap, um, I do enjoy because they do get into a lot of lore and stuff with the, the project and uh, residuals and masons and neurons and all that's interesting stuff to me. So I appreciate it as a as an experiment, uh, as something very cinematic and very different that I would have to be in the mood for to watch, basically. So so very mixed, but um, a better impression than I I used to have of it. Okay, Matt, I think this is a really good, solid piece of interesting drama about the life of Lee Harvey Oswald with with a quantum leap spin. Um, it's not necessarily a, a good good quantum leap, but it is a good drama. It is a good movie. I also think it works quite well as a, a gateway for new audiences for Quantum Leap. Um, it's not one that I would use to introduce, but I do feel that what 
Don was trying to do here was say, hey, here's a movie about JFK and Lee Harvey Oswald. Come and watch it. And along the way, we're going to sprinkle in some Quantum Leap stuff. And they, they do introduce some of the Quantum Leap stuff very well for newbies. And hopefully, you'll come back next week and watch Brooke Shields. You know, it's and I, I think it, <laughs> it works quite well on that level. Not perfectly, but quite well. All right. And Hayden. Well, I'm the most forgiving of this episode. I think it's fantastic drama. It's very, very well acted. And I do think it really makes great Quantum Leap as well. Um, I like the fact that even though the paradigm shift is quite jarring, and I'll admit it's jarring, I do like that they do keep some elements of what they've established here in some of the rest of Season 5. I think it fits in well with the theme that you know, one person can change the world. It could be for the better or it could be for the worse. And, uh, yeah, I I know that we've got a lot to talk about, but I really don't have anything bad to say about it, to be honest. Even some of the nitpicky things I've talked about, I, I still wouldn't call bad. So, yeah, I've, one of my favourites, not the favourite, but it is one of my favourites. Uh, I'm glad you allowed me to come on to talk about it. And uh, I think um, everyone should watch it if they haven't done so already. All right, so... Guys, I can't believe it. Lee Harvey Oswald in the can. Um, yeah. I was, wow, I, I had some trepidations about this because there was just so much. But uh, <laughs> I think yeah. the discussion went better than I ever imagined. And thank you guys so much for bringing so much to it. Um, but the show isn't over yet, folks. Um, we're going to take a break because we've been talking for a long time. But on the other side of that break, we're going to be bringing you my interview with actress Natasha Pavlovich, who played Marina in this episode. So stay tuned for that. We'll also be doing the interview with Ilya Bashkin. We'll catch you on the flip side. QLP is brought to you by listeners like you. Please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast and give as much as you can. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a contributor to the quantum leap podcast. It goes to covering our server cost and helps keep the podcast going. Thank you. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. If I had my life to live over again Premiering on Hulu is the original miniseries from producer J.J. Abrams, starring James Franco, based on the best-selling Stephen King novel, 112263. I'm Skipper Martin, author of the graphic novel Bizarre New World and 24-year veteran of the post-production industry. And I'm Christopher DeFilippis, creator of the radio show Deflipside, author of the Quantum Leap novel Foreknowledge, and the original time travel novella The Seeker. We all love this novel so much. We're very excited to bring you this limited event podcast covering both the original Stephen King book and the Hulu adaptation. During our first shows, we'll be discussing the novel in detail. And we'll dive deep into each episode, giving our thoughts, observations, and opinions. We'll also be taking you behind the scenes with interviews with cast members and the production staff. 
with actress Tanya Pinkins. I love the short stories, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, The Body, you know, Dolores Claiborne. He's got so many good books. I think he's one of the greatest writers of all time because he can write anything. He really can write anything. Actor Kevin Dennis. It's just, it's, it's a never ending pool of mystery and, and like this period itself is so sexy. And I think that's why this miniseries Love in 2063 is going to be so scintillating to watch. Actress Miranda Calderon. But it was great. I really had a great time with everyone. Yeah, and working with the directors as well. Editor Dorian Harris. The actors did a lovely job. They really did. It was, it was great to edit. The great James Franco and Chris Cooper. Phenomenal acting across the board. And many, many more. So subscribe to 112263, an event podcast available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at barringspace.com slash 112263. This is Jeff Corbett, and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. All right, guys, we're back, and as promised, here's my interview with Natasha Pavlovich. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, Natasha. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You have had quite an adventurous career. I have to tell you, I have done a lot of interviews for、uh, various podcasts, and it's not often that I try to research someone and find so much that I have to figure out how I'm going to narrow down what I'm going to talk about because your appearance on Quantum Leap is just a very small part of a very adventurous career. You're a beauty pageant title holder, you're a model, you're an ambassador, you're a pilot, you're a female space pioneer. You're a founding member of Virgin Galactic, and now you're an author because all that wasn't enough, right? <laughs> well, I like to keep life adventurous and exciting. So that's a lot of experience that I've been through. <laughs>、yeah. So let's, why don't, why don't we start small? Why don't we start with just a little bit of background on how you got into acting and what eventually led you to get the role of Marina Oswald on the Lee Harvey Oswald episode of Quantum Leap? Okay, well,、um, I immigrated from uh, Serbia, uh, from Bosnia, actually, when I was a little girl, and to Chicago. And I've always, growing up, watching、um, Gilligan's Island and <laughs> I Dream a Genie and、uh, some shows like that, like Different Strokes and Facts of Life, you know. And I kind of learned English. Uh, watching these shows, and I've always wanted to be part of the Brady Bunch.、Uh, <laughs> I'm an only child, so that's another reason, probably, why I wanted to be a, a, another person on the Brady Bunch. And I've always liked acting, and I was, since I was an only child, I played with Barbie dolls and I came up with my own scenes with them. And、um, my mother recognized that in me, and she signed me up into an acting school. That was headed in Chicago by the Chicago Comedy Showcase, and they were the children's version called the Jack and Jill Players. So at age eight years old, I started studying improvisation, and、um, we did plays and、um, we rehearsed every weekend. And、um, I wanted to keep pursuing that career. And、um, one day I met、um, the late. Steve Tesich, who was a Serbian director who did a Breaking Away、uh, movie. 
And uh, he was quite famous among the Serbian community. And I went to his location where he was filming in the Chicago area. And I said, I'd like to be in your movie. And he told me, well, you know, I've already have everybody for this movie, but you need to move to either New York or Los Angeles. So I literally could not get that out of my mind. And I pretty much didn't talk about anything since that moment that other than moving to California. How old were you at the point? When you did that, when you approached the film director on his set. <laughs> I was 12. <laughs> yeah. I w always have a lot of uh, courage to do that, to just walk up to somebody and ask them what I want. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up moving the following year to California with my mom. And I continued to seek uh, acting classes. And I found the Hollywood Professional School which was a private school for professional children. The people that came out of there were like Mackenzie Phillips, um, Natalie Wood, Ryan O'Neill, even uh, his son Patrick O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill went there. It has a long list of, of uh, alumni. Peggy Fleming, you know, it was all sorts of people who were who were professionals who had to spend a lot more time on the set than they did in school. So the school offered like the minimum classes. They didn't offer sports and basket weaving and stuff like that. They just offered the main science, math, reading, you know, all that stuff. So I got accepted into that school and uh, had theater classes there. And then I learned that I can take summer classes and keep making up those credits that I needed. And I did do that. And one year I was promoted to another grade. And then I did so well when I was in school that I ended up graduating at age 16 from high school. So immediately after that, I found an acting coach that was very famous in uh, L.A., the late Saldano. And I immediately started uh, acting lessons with him, like right at 16 years old out of high school. And I was determined to move my career along. Like, that's why I came to L.A. So um, very ambitious. And I ended up taking lessons with Saldano for 12 years, like constantly. It was like a lot of hours, Monday through Thursday, from 6 p.m. till after midnight we stayed like till two o'clock in the morning often plus rehearsal time. And at the same time I went to UCLA and I studied um, English literature, but I took classes uh, in film and directing. And I also volunteered to be an actress in some of the UCLA productions. So I was a, uh, really networking at a very young age and very ambitious. So anyway, uh, one time there was a audition for Quantum Leap, but it was for the role of a trapeze artist. And it was uh, perfect for me. And I wanted it so badly. I didn't get it. Fabiano uh, Denio got it. Yeah, we've spoken to her about her time on the show as well. So that was leaping in without a net. Yes, well, she's a good friend of mine. Being that we're both uh, actresses and we have accents, or she hasn't more of an accent, but we both were up for that role, and she got it, and I was I was pretty devastated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no worries. Uh, soon after that, another role occurred on Quantum Leap, 
And it was for the role of Marina Oswald. And I'm like, this is the one that I was meant for. <laughs> now, you know, this is the one I'm going to get. So I had set my mind up to getting it. Um, I do not speak Russian. So I had to learn to speak Russian uh, just for the audition. Thank God I speak Serbian. So it's not that hard for me to learn uh, Russian. You know, it's not like going from Serbian to Arabic. So then I went, I practiced with my family, with my cousins, anybody at any time. And I, I, I read every book I could find on Marina Oswald. I looked at all her pictures. I did a lot of research on her life and read everything I could about her. So she was very um, much in my heart, you know, in my being. And so then I went to the audition with my cousin <laughs> because I, I needed her to for the support and to run lines with me. So I went in and I got a call back for the audition. And then I went in and um, it's very intimidating when you see Don Belisario and the casting director mm -hmm. and the assistant casting director. And I don't remember if Deborah Pratt was there or not, but it was an intimidating room anyway. And top of that, you're nervous. So I got a hold of myself. I went in there and um, I knew that Don Belisario was uh, from Yugoslavia, but I didn't know where, former Yugoslavia. So before the audition started, I crossed myself and I said a prayer to myself in front of everybody. <laughs> mm. uh, Marina Oswald was also um, Russian Orthodox. So I kind of used that because I knew that about her. And I crossed myself and I said a silent prayer and um, Don Belisario asked me, where are you from? Uh, and I looked at him and uh, I said, Yugoslavia. And he goes, where from? And at that time, I was scared to answer because there was turmoil in the country. And if he was Croatian or if he was, wow. you know, one from another part of the country, I was kind of afraid to to be adversarial. <laughs> So I, I said, where would you like me to be from, sir? <laughs> and I said everything in an accent, as Maureen Oswald would be saying it. You know, I, I never left my character. Very subservient and very quiet-like. And uh, he took out of his uh, shirt, and he, had a, he was wearing an Orthodox cross on his necklace. And I about flipped because I I knew at that point he was on my side. Okay. <laughs> and anyway, I did the reading and they loved it and uh, they ended up casting me in it. So I was ecstatic and uh, I let Fabiana know that I was ecstatic about it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few girls that I've been around in Hollywood and we're all friends, thank God. You know, we, we're so friendly that we all know what's up and what rolls up and, you know, all that. So there's no threats there or anything. Anyway, so then when I got on the set, I mean, I had to learn uh, Russian. They had a Russian uh, language specialist to make sure that I got the Russian correct. It was a really tough role because I was portraying a, a live person. I had right. to speak in a, in a different language that is not common to me. I had to be emotional and, you know, here I was on a Universal Studios set 
with full production value. So it was a pretty great opportunity that I will never forget. On top of everything, uh, James Whitmore Jr. was the director, and um, he has a long history in film, and his dad was in film business as well, so that was very intimidating as well. Well, let me ask you. I know that um, a lot of times when you go in for a role, it's just what's on the page, but you had mentioned um, earlier that you did a lot of research into Marina Oswald, and were you able to find any kind of audio of her or video of her where you got to hear her voice or really get yourself into who she was and how she might have sounded and what, what level of uh, prep were you able to do with that? Well, when it was being filmed, I didn't have access to what we have access to now, like all the internet. Um, you know, there was no internet and in Google searches <laughs> at that time. So um, what I could look for was, pretty limited you know um right. and it it did not include audio just her books i got you okay yeah and in playing her you said that when you were in the room doing the audition you became very subservient and that came through in your performance especially in the first scene of the episode where you're joking with Scott, but that scene gets very tense very quickly. I mean, everybody that we speak to, and I'm sure you're, I, I, anyway, I'm assuming you're going to say the same thing. They say that Scott is the nicest man on earth. Like they, they've never met or worked with anybody nicer yet. I agree. You, I okay, agree. He, he is, <laughs> and you know, I've worked with him again and he is the nicest guy and I can, I want to work with him again. I mean, he's just, professional, nice, considerate, great actor. There's a lot of consideration when you're doing a, a scene and they have the camera on one actor and you give it your all to them and then they turn the cameras to the other person and then they're just giving you lines. You know, that's not the way it works. You got to give it your all on every single take so that the other person responds the same way. So he is the utmost gentleman and professional Yes, that's true. So, But now juxtapose that with the type of scene that you had to play, where Alec or Oswald hits Marina. How did you guys prepare for that scene? Was there any kind of special discussion that you had beforehand? Or Yes, he did not want to slap me in rehearsals, and he was very timid, you know, like he didn't want to hurt me or, you know, just very uh, gentle. Uh, he didn't even pretend like he was going to hit me. So... I needed that bolt of lightning, you know, to get me going. So I had to ask him to just please, you know, just give it your all. You know, I'm going to survive. <laughs> so there was a couple of times when we were rehearsing. I think that they shot it as well because in case, you know, they wanted to use that footage where he did actually slap me hard and, um, I was thankful for that because I, you know, I needed that for my character to react that way. So, yeah, it took a little bit of nudging to get him to free him up to not be so gentle as as he normally is. Were those actual slaps that were caught on camera or they just, I assume that they were stagecraft? No, no, he slapped me. Oh my goodness. Wow, the sacrifices you make for art, huh? <laughs> That's not a sacrifice. Sacrifice is wearing high heels and getting <laughs> blisters and walking 
totally, you know, like like you have no problems in the world when your like feet are hurting you. So that wasn't a sacrifice. So you'll take a slap over that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, any day. <laughs> well, you guys in that scene recreated an iconic image um, that is forever associated with the Kennedy assassination. That's the shot of Oswald holding up the Carcetto rifle and the newspaper. And I was wondering how much care went into sort of the staging of that and how how involved were you in that because i know that they just had a cutaway of you behind the camera taking the picture were you present when they were staging that shot i was there during the entire shoot you know even when they weren't shooting my scenes i was there on the sound stage just watching and observing everything so yes i was there during the whole setup and um, all I could say is Scott really got into character and he was, you know, he didn't have to do it over too many times. And he was just awesome. Like they, they didn't have any problems retaking that scene or anything like that. So it was a, a lot going on. I think that the there was twin babies on the set that I had to carry. So that was more of like, are they going to, you know, come to me and are they going to cry or how that's going to be? So and then um, Dean Stockwell's character pops in, you know, so we had to set that up as well in the middle of the scene. So it was a lot of shooting around that, different angles, different um, close-ups on different characters, you know. So there was a, a long shoot. I remember that scene very well. And that's a time when you got to have some time on set with Dean, even though nobody can interact with Dean but Scott because of the show. But how was it working with Dean? Awesome. You know what? The entire crew was a joy, honestly. I was probably just overwhelmed that I was living my dream. So I absorbed every moment and there was nobody that could be mean or things that went wrong or anything because I was just in bliss and trying to do my character well. So yeah, it was an awesome, awesome set. That's great to hear. Um, we hear that so often, so it's always nice to have that reconfirmed by every single guest star that's ever been on Quantum Leap. <laughs> yeah. And the fans of Quantum Leap are exceptional, too. I've been to a couple of the Leap conventions, mm -hmm. and I have made some friends till this day because of those conventions. Like, um, it was all a convention for charity, and the money that they made from the people attending went to a good cause. And mm -hmm. the people that I met came from England and France and all over the United States. And I met other people that played, that were actors from Quantum Leap. It was, one of them was John DeKino. Yeah, sure. Sure. We know John. Yeah. So um, I got to attend the convention with him. So I got to meet other actors and I got to meet the fans. And really, I got so much more out of playing Maureen Oswald and, and that job for my life than it was just a job, you know. I made friends uh, with Scott. So I went in on another audition like years later, and it was for Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It was the TV show Mr. and Mrs. Smith mm -hmm. that Scott Bakula starred in. So I went to the audition and I'm laughing at the audition because it calls for a girl, a character named Natasha Pavlovich, who's Serbian, whose father <laughs> is in the military. And I'm like, okay, Scott knows he just created this role for me. I'm laughing at it like 
Like, you know, do I even have to come in to, for, to meet with this? <laughs> that was my attitude, honestly. So I went into the audition and I was like, I thought this, this was just, you know, for the process that they have to do anyway. Like they can't just give me the role. And so I went in there with a total attitude like, okay, I know Scott wrote this for me or this is, this is about me. So why don't we just get the contract going and sign the papers? And they said, no, he didn't. So I was like, this is not real. You know, I am Natasha Pavlich. I am Serbian. My <laughs> father was in the military. So I ended up getting the job. And then uh, I worked with Scott again on Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It was a small role. But to see him again and telling him that story. And he's like, no, I didn't. But I'm so glad you're here and everything. So that was really cool that I got to work with him again. That's just funny. That's uncanny that it came up independently like that on a Scott Bakula project, which is weird. Yeah. And also I got a lot more work out of that because Don Belisario really liked me. So when he had the show Jag, he cast me twice, not once, but twice. And he offered me a third role that um, I couldn't do at the time. But um, one role was playing a lead of an Iraqi lieutenant called Sibitar. And uh, I had to learn how to speak Arabic for that. So that was a really great role. And then he cast me in a huge role, like a season finale of, of Jag. And it was the role of the show called Gypsy Eyes. And I played a Roman character, a gypsy girl, who speaks in Roman. And I had to learn another language and how to speak in Roman. So in that show, I spoke Russian, Roman, and English. And so, you know, I've got, like, my life's worth uh, roles just out of Don Belisario and his projects. So I'm and one happy funny. camper. Yeah, right. And it seems like he keeps putting you into his event episodes. You say you were on the finale of JAG. You were on probably the biggest episode of Quantum Leap to that time. So yeah, it was the first time that Scott's character leapt into a real person. Right. right. Yeah, he he really liked me and maybe it was the prayer that that did it. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> Who can say? Well, as amazing as that is, I mean, as I said at the top of the interview, it's just a very small part of a lot of stuff that you have done. And since I'm a space nerd, I would really Really love to hear how you became the first Serbian woman to go to the edge of space. And uh, I, this, I guess, maybe I should preface this for the people that are listening. Natasha made space history by going to the edge of space, the first Serbian woman to do so. So, And you did it by co-piloting a MiG-25? I, yes. I know you're a pilot, so so you, you just got to tell me how all this came together. Because to me, I find that fascinating. Well, on my very first flight as a child from uh, Serbia to Chicago, that was my first flight ever. And I was just overwhelmed and curious about how this plane can get up in the air. And when I saw it landing with all the Chicago lights at that time, it was an image and a frame that, I, that always stayed with me. So when I went to L.A., I lived in Santa Monica, and there was a Santa Monica airport there, and I always saw planes, private planes flying out, and I just, I had a few friends that were pilots, and they had their own planes, and I went up with them, and 
one time I was thinking if something happened to this guy, you know, I'd have to bring this plane down since I'm the only one in it. Mm. And so I decided to take lessons and um, eventually got my license and flew on my own. I ended up picking up friends and taking them to lunch to Santa Barbara and going to <laughs> Vegas. And it was just so freeing and so amazing to be able to fly like that. So I, I was always curious and I finally did it myself. And um, somebody said to me, oh, you know, do you know Poncho Barnes? And I said, no. So I started reading about Poncho Barnes and she was a an amazing woman who, who was just a trailblazer. Uh, and then I started reading about um, Amelia Earhart. And then uh, I started reading about the women Air Force service pilots of World War II, the WASP. And then I started reading about how they contributed to the war effort. And then they were never recognized as veterans till like 40 years later or 30 years later. I'm sorry. And so I started reading so much about them and flight. Uh, I wanted to do more myself because I was just amazed at during that time when a woman should just be was expected to be like a secretary or a nurse or a teacher mm -hmm. or a homemaker these ladies were charting the maps uh ferrying new planes testing them and they were really instrumental in helping with the world war ii effort but they were unrecognized so i actually got to meet one of the wasp one of the original ones who were was part of that and i'll tell you I've met a lot of celebrities, a lot of, you know, movie stars and public figures, and I'm, I'm not intimidated. But when I met this woman <laughs> who was like, you know, five feet tall and she was a former wasp, I was shaking. I was just <laughs> shaking with joy, like, because I was feeling how much she had accomplished, you know, like, wow, I was just in awe of her. And uh, I ended up writing a screenplay uh, called w The Wings of a Wasp, and WASP being the acronym for Women Air Force Service Pilot. And um, I got a lot of good response from Hollywood about my screenplay, but they said I should write it more as a novel to begin with. Okay. Uh, so I have been writing that and it's almost finished. That's one of my novels and it has to do with, with the wasp. Okay. Well, if we can maybe circle out from that, from that experience, can you tell me how you got into that MIG to go to the edge of space? So I wanted to, um, experience more in flight and uh, my friends allowed me to go with them in uh, acrobatic airplanes and world war ii airplanes and uh russian uh, dolphin airplanes so there was one function in la that i went to and i happened to sit next to dennis tito who you'll know is a was the first commercial citizen to go into space uh, he paid like $20 million, mm. but he went into orbit for out of Russia. He was the first one to start that. And I sat next to him and I couldn't leave him all night without talking to him about his flight and uh, bothering him. And mm. I said, how can I go into space, but less, you know, 
He laughed, but he told me that there was a company called Space Adventures that allowed for citizens to ride in a MiG-25 and to experience some of that weightlessness and, and that speed. So immediately I called them up and I met with the company and I ended up going to Zhukovsk Air Base in Russia and uh, co-piloting the MiG-25 with a Russian pilot. And it was so quick and everything, but um, I ended up going to 68,000 feet in the air. And um, I experienced where the plane just doesn't have any more air to fly. So the instruments all start to shake like they're all broken. And then you plummet back into the from the gravity plummet back into earth. So that was the, the highest that we could go with that type of airplane. On the way back down, you know, I got to do some acrobatics and loops and stuff that I had learned from my other friends and I took the controls. And so it was awesome. And I, I also carried a Russian flag, a American flag and a Serbian flag. And the reason being is because I wanted to honor the country I was born in. Uh, I wanted to honor the country that I was raised in uh, and the country that offered me this opportunity. So That's an amazing thing. Now, if you can just set the scene a tiny bit, I guess you guys are screaming upwards, straight up towards the stratosphere. And when you got to the limits of where the plane could fly, was there weightlessness? Were you able to see sort of the horizon, the curvature of the earth? Like, Can you set the scene a little bit on that? Yes, uh, it was winter time. It was February. And I chose specifically to go in the winter time because uh, you can go up a little bit higher when the air is colder. Uh, so I wanted to get as much distance as possible. So everything was snow white uh, on the ground. Uh, but when we took off, you could start seeing the curvature of the earth. But um, once we got out of the clouds, you could still see a little bit of the curvature of the earth. And uh, it was just, I think there's a videotape that you could see a little bit of the earth in the background of my video. Uh, It was recording. But um, yes, and weightlessness, I did experience that. Uh, The same time that the plane has no more air, you know, you're just floating up there. And it didn't take too long for the plane to just give up and plumb it back down. Was that scary? I imagine it was scary. It wasn't because I was I was expecting it. So if I wasn't expecting it and saw the instruments shaking, that would have been a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the scariest thing is you see all the instrument gauges like malfunctioning, like all of them, because they don't have any way to work the gyroscope is malfunctioning. And uh, so I expected that. So that's why it wasn't as scary. Were you able to see the stars? No. Oh, that's too bad. It was during the daytime. I didn't go during the nighttime. Right. I didn't know how far you needed to get up before you could actually start seeing stars in the daytime. I guess further than, what was it? 86,000 feet? 68, 68. 68. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's crazy. That's cool. Well, from there, I guess your interest in space only grew because I read that you were one of the pioneering members of Virgin Galactic. Can you tell me about that? 
Well, as soon as I heard about it on the news that Richard Branson was uh, starting up a company for commercial space travel, uh, I immediately contacted them. And I was like, I'm the girl, you know, I need to go. And again, I was courageous and asking for what I wanted. (laughs) So I met with them and Richard chose me to be one of the founders. And um, I've been friends with them ever since. So um, they've been making a lot of uh, progress onto getting people to actually take on the flights, you know, to commit mm-hmm. to space travel. But let me tell you, it's going to be amazing. The future is going to be all about space travel because you will be able to fly, like, for example, from New York to Sydney, Australia in like three hours because yeah. the airplane or the will go out of the atmosphere and then zoom over and then, you know, just land. So it will be amazing in the future for air travel. So have you been up as part of experimental flights for Virgin Galactic? Like what, what has your involvement been vis-a-vis um, actually getting into the sky? Originally, um, when I signed up, they had a group of original founders. So as part of the training, I went to Philadelphia where they have a school for flight training and they have an actual centrifuge uh, and simulators And I was able to pass those tests after passing medical exams. And, um, and so I got a certificate in, in being in the centrifuge and, um, in the simulator. And have you gone up? No, nobody has. They're still working daily in uh, Mojave, California on, uh, ensuring that the safety of all the, the spaceships, are running smoothly and they've just recently did another test and they're doing everything successfully and, and safely. So I've met the pilots, the astronauts now that have right. gone up. Uh, Brian Binney was the first one that went up in the Virgin flight. And so I got to meet him and um, it's just very exciting. The whole culture of Virgin is exciting on the leaps that they make for the world. That's an amazing thing. And I guess that you have that to look forward to. You have that, that space flight to look forward to. You're still part of the crew. So going from that to stuff that you're doing these days, in addition to all of the neat flying, you are a writer. Like you, you mentioned before that you wrote, you're writing the novel about the, the wasp pilots from world war two, but I understand you have a new book coming out this year. Yes, and um, hopefully at, by the end of this year, uh, it's called um, Among Stars, 10 Habits to Skyrocket to Success. And the book is partly a memoir and partly um, a motivational book. And it is about how I met certain stars in Hollywood, and it's also about stars in the sky. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, that's why it's called Among Stars, and um, it talks about my meetings and, and hanging out with friends like Richard Branson and Arnold Schwarzenegger and um, Stallone and um, so many other people that I've come in touch with in my life that are not even some of them are celebrities, but just very, very successful people. And what I've learned from them 
in their character characteristics and how I'm applying that to my own life and how I applied it to everything that I've done, you know, like, you know, their mindset is go after what you want, you know, and, and mine is like that too. So I'm sharing with people my experiences in the past and also sharing what I've learned from these successful people. And will people be able to find that book soon? Where will they be able to get it? You can check on my website to see and my social media accounts will have it all posted once it's ready. Okay. And can you tell people where they can find you online? NatashaPavlovich.com. Okay. We, that's easy to remember. We'll certainly put a link to that on the show page for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast. And if we can return a little bit to Quantum Leap, it seemed to me like you had been in the game for a little while there. And um, when you got on set, you probably knew what to expect. But were there any unexpected moments on set? No, there were not. For Quantum Leap, everything went very smoothly. I mean, I could tell you about other sets that, you know, things went wrong or whatever. But on Quantum Leap, it was really the perfect place to to start a a great career, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Natasha, you've been very generous with your time. Do you have any final thoughts about your time on Quantum Leap or a message for the leapers out there who are listening? It has been a pleasure of mine to meet the leapers. Honestly, uh, they are all good people. It's like an extension of the show that I did. And to this day, I have a lot of friends online uh, that I keep in touch with uh, that I've met at the conventions or through just a fan mail. And um, I'm so blessed to have been part of the show, to have been part of the crew that was outstanding uh, to have played a character that was uh, a real-life uh, character. And it will forever be a memory of greatness to me and a token of my success. So no matter what else I do or don't do in the film industry, I always feel like I'm a successful actress just due to Quantum Leap. Well, that's a wonderful sentiment. Thank you so much for appearing on the Quantum Leap podcast, Natasha. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you all. Guys, I can't tell you what a pleasure it was to talk to Natasha. She was just such a cool person. And I have to thank you, Hayden, for arranging that, for getting me in touch with her. Because, um, you know, I get to do a lot of interviews with a lot of actors. And I think that you've facilitated quite a bit of them. So I'm especially appreciative that I was able to talk to her. And thank you for getting in touch with her. You're welcome. Um, I'm sorry to all the listeners who have been waiting with bated breath for interviews. I did let the ball drop for quite a while, but I'm trying to, and we all are trying to get more interviews for the podcast. It's not easy, but uh, but yeah, we do have some interesting ones coming up, I hope. Mm. Um, Good stuff. I think uh, Alison might have organised one for us for the next episode. uh, We'll get to that. It's very hard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, wait, let's not get ahead of ourselves because we also have this interview with Ilya Bashkin, who played the Russian major Yuri Kosenko in this episode. He had some, I guess, um, pithy things to say about his time on Quantum Leap. And uh, I want to thank my old partner, Skipper Martin, for securing this. He went to Ilya's house 
and he sat and he talked with them for over an hour. But here's what Ilya had to say about his time filming Lee Harvey Oswald. There's a documentary that came out in 2012 called The Guy Who Was In That Thing. It highlighted recognizable character actors. If there was ever a performer who absolutely qualified to be included in a project like that, it was my guest today. IMDb currently lists him with 89 acting credits, dating back to 1972. But like the actors in that documentary, his name isn't the most well-known. When I tell people about him, I consider the age of the person I'm speaking to. If they're younger, I bring up the highly agitated landlord, Mr. Dickovich, from Spider-Man 2 and 3. If they're my age, I'll mention his role as the lovable doomed cosmonaut Max from 2010, the year we make contact, or the tragic clown Anatoly from Moscow on the Hudson. I'm talking to him today because of his role in the season 5 premiere episode of Quantum Leap called Lee Harvey Oswald. I'm lucky enough to not only be talking to the man, but sitting here across from him in person, Ilya Baskin. Obviously, it's great to meet you. Uh, likewise, and uh, we both are lucky. <laughs> um, this is going to be a very vague question, but I'd like to answer it any way you want. Could you please talk to me about why and how you came to America originally? Oh, you know, that, that that's a, a thing that we can talk like for hours. <laughs> I'm sure. And... Uh, there was a possibility in the late 70s uh, when the relationships uh, with the two countries, USA and the Soviet Union, were kind of getting a little bit better, a little bit softer. And uh, the Iron Curtain started, they lifted a little bit. And uh, there was a possibility for people who had relatives abroad to apply to leave the country. Uh, nobody, nobody knew how long it last. It, I mean, curtain is a curtain. I mean, what year would this be? Like mid seventies, like early to mid seventies. Okay. I, I left Soviet Union uh, in nineteen seventy six, but uh, prior to me, like three years, immigration already has started. So, um, yeah, I was afraid to miss this opportunity. And I applied, and I was fortunate enough to get the permission, and I left. I was 25 at the time, and I had a nice beginning of an acting career. I already did a couple of television series in back in Russia, and uh, thought that, I mean, that was the biggest fear. Would I be able to do the same when I crossed the border? And when I decided that, because there was no way back like now, you couldn't come back. You, you, you gave, you actually gave up your citizenship in Soviet Union when you immigrated. But I decided that, uh, it was the risk because while I was living, I mean, everybody at that time couldn't travel, see the world. And, and, uh, and here, uh, to miss this opportunity, I thought would be very silly. So I took the risk and uh, I was ready to do something else. How big was your career before you moved here? It wasn't huge. I was a recognizable face, sort of like now. You know. <laughs> but uh, I wasn't a huge star. When you came to America, you've been in so many films and television shows. When did people really start to recognize you on the street here? It happened now and there before Moscow and the Hudson, but the biggest 
part at that time I had in a major motion picture was Moscow and the Hudson, directed by Paul Mazursky, was late uh, Robin Williams. And uh, because it was one of the leads, I played this, as you mentioned before, clown Anatoly. And uh, people who saw the film started to recognize. Plus, I got uh, very good publicity out of it. So, uh, I mean, I got some exposure, and, uh, and that's what made uh, people recognize me. Um, I understand that for Quantum Leap, it was a small job, and you did it way, 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 way back in 1992. But is there anything you can tell us about your part in the episode? Doing the show Quantum Leap, which had its own, you know, unique, uh, had its own unique spin. Yeah, and um, yeah, I met two remarkable people, actually three. Don Belisario was one who hired me, mm-hmm. and then uh, it was uh, a lot of fun working uh, with Scott and uh, with Dean. Mm-hmm. And actually, there is a. After uh, this job, I became a cigar smoker because of Dean. Ah! <laughs> Sorry, uh, that, that sounds like Dean. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the episode, that episode was special because that was the very first one that veered off into uncharted territory and had the lead character, Sam Beckett, leap into a real person, Lee Harvey mm-hmm. Oswald. Um, were you asked to research your character at all? You played Major Yuri Kosenko. Was he based on anyone real or was it all uh, all totally fictional? You know, I read and so so many documentaries on this whole crisis uh, and and uh, I, I I'll be I'll be honest with you I didn't do much research uh, and uh, was he a real person I think there was a person by that name okay this one is more for me I, I really have to ask this I now have the opportunity to talk to someone who was living in Russia and alive at the time when you were a teenager I guess yeah I was 14 right 64 uh, 63. So, yeah, I was 13. Um, can you tell me anything in regards to someone living in Russia who heard about John F. Kennedy being assassinated? I, I think it was a big uh, shock for everybody. I mean, nobody was happy about it, even we're adversaries. But, I mean, Kennedy was a very charismatic and likable leader. And, I mean, I'm talking, I'm talking uh, from... Uh, teenager's point of view. Sure, no, that's exactly what I want. Yeah, yeah, that's what I remember. But I don't remember people cheering, oh, an enemy's president was assassinated. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were some talk on television about the way of life in America, how the guns are available. Uh, I mean, and, but, but basically, basically, uh, the tone was very subdued and people really uh, felt for the Americans. Uh, this is the most common question people get asked around that time. Do you remember where you were when you heard that the, the president had been killed? No, I didn't smoke cigars then and uh, <laughs> didn't have a girlfriend. No, I don't remember where That's I was. Okay. I thought I'd ask. Thank you very much for just letting us come here and talk to you about this. Oh, it's my pleasure, guys. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, he was in Quantum Leap. We spoke about it. <laughs> and I did my job. Ilya, thank you very much. My pleasure. Come back again anytime. Again, Ilya, thank you very much for spending the time talking to uh, Skipper and for giving us those insights into your time on Quantum Leap. Like I said earlier, everyone, if you want to hear that full interview, just scroll back on your feed for the Quantum Leap podcast. Um, Look for the bonus episode, Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, for sure, link to all of that stuff in our show notes. So go to the the website, quantumleappodcast.com. 
If you'd like to share your thoughts with us about Lee Harvey Oswald or the Quantum Leap podcast in general, there are many ways that you can reach us. You can get us by phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at quantumleappod. And you can also go that extra mile and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. Just remember that we may use your response on an upcoming episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. And speaking of upcoming episodes, Matt, what's next? Well, next, we're not watching Quantum Leap at all. We're watching Blue Lagoon. <laughs> um, no, I joke, I've never actually seen Blue Lagoon, but I'm told that, it's, uh, that there's some similarities there. So we'll be uh, enjoying Brooke Shields in uh, Leaping of the Shrew. Guys, you know what? Season five, getting off to a rousing start. We go from Lee Harvey Oswald in the book depository to Princess Pain in the Buffalo, and I, for one, can't wait. Mm. <laughs> Look forward to that. Next time on the Quantum Leap Podcast. And uh, we'll also be hearing from Allison's best friend, Jean-Pierre Duraliac, because he was also the costume designer, I guess, costume designer for the Blue Lagoon. So I think he has some very special insights into this episode. Anyway, I hope he does. Regardless, I think he's going to be entertaining. Allison promises us that. So, Allison, you better deliver. <laughs> he's always entertaining. Yeah, guys. So, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm so happy that we're embarking on this season five journey because it's going to get wacky from here, folks. It's just, it, wow, season five. This is where it gets good. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm looking forward to talking about all of it with you guys. Until then, I have been Christopher DeFilippis. I've been Allison Pregler. I've been Matt Dale. And I've been MC Queenie in the house. And we'll talk to you next time, whatever that was. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris, with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, Christopher DeFilippis, and Allison Pregler. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Morgan Felden is the producer. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual, and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit Baronspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap podcast is a Baron Space production. It's funny, I was listening back to the interview so I could pull the excerpts that we're going to play for you later. And he speaks um, almost, uh, it's going to be a very short excerpt. It's going to be a very short excerpt. Excerpt. Yeah, sorry, guys. I know I'm saying that, that word wrong.
Excerpt? Or is it excerpt? Excerpt. 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 Right? No, no P. I think there's a P. In well, there. there's a silent P. <laughs> Maybe for you Brits. It's excerpt. Excerpt. I've always heard it with the P. Wait, this is... I'm going to find out. I've always heard it with the P as well, Matt, so... We should not argue with the Queen's English, I looked though. up the pronunciation, <laughs> and the P is pronounced. It's excerpt. Anyway, so it's going to be a very short cutaway <laughs> when we listen to it, but... <laughs> We've got stuff for the blooper reel, all right? And speaking of upcoming episodes of the Quantum Leap podcast, Matt, what's up next? I'll say that again. Well, Matt, next... Matt, I, I, just, I said that weird. Guys, I'm, I'm losing it. <laughs> what's up next? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How can you say Matt weirdly? Lee Harvey Oswald, sit still for this photo.